Hello and welcome to the back page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's things going? Have you seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier yet? I've seen one episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which kind of shows my feelings towards Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Was that because the theme tune was so bad that you were like offended <laughs> and had to turn it off? I know that's a problem with you and Marvel content. <laughs> it was very it was very in keeping with the rest of the Marvel universe in, in its total non existence. I was quite unnerved by a new Captain America with a very strange chin. I couldn't work out how that actor looks like that in the suit, because I know what he looks like in real life. <laughs> Confusing. <laughs> um, and, and and also there wasn't much Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah, there was um, there was Falcon and Winter Soldier separately, but not at the same time. And, um, and yeah, in therapy and like running a fish shop. That's fair enough. It's been an extremely messy show, actually, considering it costs a reported like twenty million an episode to make. It's like weirdly fragmented, has too many characters, quite badly plotted, loads of kind of like weird decisions. It's um. A flawed product. I think they were quite uh, they made a quite good decision to go with one division first, actually, which is um, a lot tighter yeah. overall. And so, yeah, weird Captain America chin. Is he Captain America then going forwards? That guy? No, I don't think so. Um, okay, not to spoil what happens in the rest of the show, but like um, he's sort of like got so, someone compared him to the Captain America from the Square Enix Avengers game, where it's like. <laughs> And like, that's so harsh that's very brutal isn't it and his um white russell's little ears stick out of his helmet which looks a bit odd and uh yeah i think they've kind of like deliberately made him look a bit like a goon and not as good as um steve rogers but he looks uh, like a villain he looks a bit like scully it looks like the red skull a bit i think he's yeah. got quite weird like contours of his face but He's got the kind of energy of like a Captain America who gets cancelled when people find like loads of old like bad racist tweets he did like ten years ago, <laughs> and then it's like, well, look at the and no one's surprised. Everyone's like, well, yeah, of course he is. He, um, he's got he's definitely got a hail Hydra treat somewhere in his history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh dear, but um, I did it with a winking emoji, so I didn't mean it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, so Matthew. This episode, we have done like Games Magazine covers from Hell, and then we did like From Heaven as well. And mm. one of our most persistently downloaded episodes, and like very much our calling card episode, was the game review scores we got wrong discussion, which was like really good. It was because it was early on in the podcast for us, it was actually quite a short episode. And that's kind of shocking for us because all of ours end up being like almost three hours long in most cases. But, um, I guess it was just uh, we didn't want at the time we were trying to like keep it lean and aim for like an hour an episode, so um, <laughs> it was quite a lean discussion. But we thought, in the same way, we did like a kind of accompanying like positive uh, sort of covers episode. We thought it'd be a cool thing to do with reviews too. But mm. this is quite interesting because this is, I think, going to be like two men being defensive about review scores from like ten years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's that episode, I think. Uh, well, I, I think the implication of the review scores we got wrong was that every other score was fine or that we stood <laughs> by it or we thought we got it right. Mm. And when you go out of your way to do a review scores we got right, that's quite a smug title. I could understand if you saw that title on your podcasting app and rolled your eyes at it. Of like, oh, jeez, get over yourselves. But hopefully we've picked a selection of like interesting kind of games which were like divisive in some way or had some kind of story around them which makes this discussion less smug than it sounds yeah i think the um 
the other key element here is that uh, we get asked loads about reviewing. Like that's mm. one of the things that listeners ask the most about. I think it's because it's um, you know one of the sort of like uh, the, the big things you do as a you know games media professional, and mm. we have like a lot of experience doing it. Matthew has a lot more experience than me. I went over um, my review scores actually, and like um, I've, I forget they kind of run out for me in about 2010 because I moved to the magazine Sci-Fi Now for a few years, so I was working in TV and film. But Matthew, you kind of never stopped reviewing games, and you've got a broad spread of like titles here from across, you know, basically from now back until 2006. Um, mm. So yeah, yeah. I, th- th- there was arguably a point I should have been reviewing less. Um, <laughs> I think weirdly I reviewed a lot as an editor, probably more than other editors. But I don't know if that just coincided with, you know everyone having to do a bit more writing on mags because there did come a point where like team size has shrunk a bit or whatever and and after that point it was a bit more like all hands to the deck but you know I've, I've always worked on mags where the editors wrote quite a lot of reviews I continued doing that but there there is a case to be made I was a bit of a review hog maybe <laughs> on like OXM <laughs> when you talked about like doing that Metal Gear Solid 5 uh, event for example I was like um you know oh are you sure you didn't want to send a star fryer on that one but like uh <laughs> You've, um, you know, like you say, uh, you're a bit of a, a kind of review hog. But I kind of get it. I, I missed reviewing games deeper into my career. On PC Gamer, we had so many writers in the US and the UK that it kind of made sense to spread the big games around a bit. And mm. for me to, like, not review that many big games because I had a magazine to make. And, yeah, and there was a website as well, and I had to kind of funnel reviews through to that. So I didn't end up doing that many. But um, I think what that means is in this episode, we're going to have, like, a another sort of deep discussion about the process of reviewing games and reviewing specific games. So I've got a selection of games where I felt like I got the review scores right, where I'm going to talk about the process behind those reviews and why those scores end up the way they did. There was some, there's a broad spread there, but Matthew's is, Matthew's selection is like bigger and more interesting. I would say oh, you've got like, well, we'll see. <laughs> there's like a good mix there of end gamer kind of titles, but then also, a few kind of like more HD console stuff that I think um, will yield some interesting discussion. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be good, and um, maybe some personal uh, disagreement between us. Yes, exactly. Because when we were looking through this, I realised I reviewed one of the games that Matthew rated quite highly here and gave it a bit of a miserable score. So that <laughs> I've uh, saved that as a surprise. Matthew doesn't know which one, so that will be um, fun to discuss. But we've got like a short section where we're going to talk a bit more on our further thoughts on reviews including a bit of how we felt about magazines we read as uh, younger people and what we thought of their reviewing processes and then we're going to move on to the games so we've each got a list we'll fire through them we'll talk about the scores we gave them and then we'll um, justify the scores and uh, have a big discussion about the games in question so it should be fun so Matthew to kick off then how do you factor in an outlet's criteria when you're assigning a score uh, to a game for a review, or you're reviewing a game in general, how much do you think about how the specific outlet, you know, like thinks about games or talks about games? Yeah, I, I think this is this is quite important when you work on a magazine, and you know, when you work on your own magazine, you're really, really like tuned into the mag's voice. You know that it has a voice. You know what it's trying to do. You, you know, you know what kind of scores it's giving. You know what it values, what it doesn't value. I've always found it a bit weird that. 
that almost that, that that wouldn't apply when you're writing for like someone else as well. So, you know, when I was working on Endgame, I used to do quite a lot of freelance, like across future. I used to do a, a, a fair amount for Games Master and Edge, which are very, very different magazines coming from like very different places. I, I felt like it was like absolutely essential to like appreciate like where they were coming from whenever I wrote those reviews. And I definitely gave scores in Edge that, like, I wouldn't have given in... You know, they would have been very different in Endgamer or Gamesmaster, for example. Where do you sort of sit sit on it? Yeah, I agree with that. There was... When I was doing freelance for GamesTM for the first time, GamesTM being a mag that, like, uh, you know, was sort of courting a similar audience to Edge and, you know, cultivating a similar sort of credibility in how it hmm. talked about games... Um, I did feel like I had to be slightly harsher, yeah. It felt like I'd almost be dropping a point. Well, not maybe, it, maybe it wasn't as scientific as that, but, you know, if something got like 80 in play, I wouldn't feel uncomfortable about giving it a 7 in games TM necessarily. Right. Um, I think it really helps, actually, when mags have printed in their, you know, the front of their review section, like, okay, this is what the scores represent. And as a freelancer, right. I would use that as a kind of, like, metric of, okay, well, they say that, like, you know... 50 is what they consider, you know, middle of the road. And then, like, 80 is what is what they consider a great game. And then above that, it gets a bit more like, you know, only give a 10 to an elite tier, you know, all-time classic, which is something that Edge has kind of um, maintained yeah. over the years too. But uh, uh, Edge, Edge had that infamous score box, which, which had Edge scores explained, and it just said 10, 10, 9 is 9, 8 is 8. <laughs> and it was just the numbers to letters. That, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's a thing that happened. I'm not just imagining that. <laughs> no, I vaguely recall that. Was that like maybe the early noughties or maybe throughout Yeah, that was uh, definitely earlier, Edge. But I, I remember a similar box in games because James TM almost had that like scoring philosophy in the mag about yeah. the, was it about five, seven and nine or something? Uh, vaguely rings a bell, yeah. And this again might be earlier games TM, but it was like a, you know, I, I definitely remember in like some of the first issues I picked up, where it was kind of these are the, the you know these are actually the three most important scores. You know, we're reclaiming five as average, and seven is a good game, and you know nine is a exceptional game or something. Yeah, what do you make of the um, <laughs> discussion of what average is? Because I think I don't try not to get too invested in like conversations about Metacritic, but. The fact that when you get into like sevens, that Metacritic color changes from green to yellow is kind of annoying because you see it yeah. and you're like, well, you are suggesting that average starts here a little bit. And I think that's kind of like helped warp commenters' minds about what an average score is. And I, I always try to think of like 50 as average. No, actually, no matter what outlet I was writing for, like, um, I don't think any of them would say that like 70 was average, but that was the thing that like seemed to grow in the audience's mind that seven was average or maybe like the review scores from from the past helps tell that story a little bit what do you think of that yeah you know it's just it's this kind of feeling that someone would read a review of a game that got like 55 and a game that got 61 they wouldn't buy either of those games like <laughs> i think i think that was the case for the seven average it's like once you drop below 70 like most people wouldn't wouldn't venture into that area in their like buying habits, so you know it's kind of kind of 
point, pointless putting anything there if you're trying to be like subtle about it and go, no, it's above average. It's a 58, you know, and it's like, well, you've doomed that game, you know, <laughs> you may as well just take it out back and shoot it in the head. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Like I, I always, I got the impression that like, you know, for, for as much as we said five was average and did work to that. I I never thought I you know I thought people's cutoff point was way higher than that you know it was it probably wasn't even seven you know it felt like you know I felt bad giving a game seventy nine instead of eighty because I felt like that seven cursed it in some way my sort of attempts to remedy that a little bit was when we redesigned official Nintendo magazine we bought in a bronze basically anything in the seventies got a bronze award. And then anything in the eighties got got the silver award, and then nineties and above got a gold award. And I felt I actually did feel like we shifted our scoring accordingly, or or people were more comfortable giving a game a seven score because it had this arbitrary bronze award. Like it still felt special, right? Which which I think helped. Yeah, I think that average becomes quite a weird term in um, games as well because what is an average game? Like it's. You kind of describe what you're describing is the the feeling of like I I have no real strong feelings on this one way or another, and I feel like in most cases a game will provoke some kind of feeling from you, even if you're even if you're in your head you think well this is what this outlet would consider an average game. It ends up being quite like a weird arbitrary thing, I think, and uh, yeah, quite a strange thing to unpack. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, it's, it's weird, though, because you do get a sense of, like, there's definitely some reviews where I got a sense of, like, score as weapon, where you're like, you know, I think this game is quite weird, and I, I it's good, but it's super weird, and I think the weirdness of the concept, or the fact that it's quite a hard sell, will put people off, so I'm maybe going to give it a little bit higher score to kind of get people over that hump mm. i mean that happened quite a bit on end gamer just because we were dealing with some quite weird wii games and you're like you know what we're going to champion this one we're going to get we're going to get behind it we're going to give it and we're going to give it a 90 because that's quite hard to look away from that's quite hard to sort of like you know all that brings it into people's definitely like you know catches people's eye and draws them out of maybe draws them out of their comfort zone and you have to be careful because you obviously don't want to kind of like oversell something that's baffling but i you know i I think with things like that like little king's story would be a great example of a game which is quite a quite a hard sell it's quite weird but i also felt it was really in tune with what like end game was about it had the similar sense of humor i thought you know what if you like this mag i think you will like this game like i'm quite comfortable in saying that so you know it almost kind of yeah wielded the score as a, a bit of a weapon in that case to kind of sort of punch through that that weirdness yeah i did that a few times i remember one example of that i can think of is um I don't know if you remember the game Fuel on Xbox 360. Oh, yeah. So I gave that like a 7 out of 10. I think I think every outlet either gave it like 4 to 6 out of 10. But I thought it was like this gigantic open world game from a Sobo studio who I believe uh, worked on Flight Simulator last year. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're kind of like a giant map approach to making games. What Did it eventually kind of find like a, the right place for it, basically? But... I quite liked it. It was just had this very varied sort of like landscapes, this giant open world, loads of different like open world racing activities you could go and do. Maybe it wasn't the most exciting racing game in the world, but it did have these big weather effects that were kicking every now and then. 
And I remember thinking there was just a little bit more to it where I thought, well, do you know what? Like, if I give this a 5 out of 10, it will basically just vanish out of people's minds entirely. When you give it a Mm. 7 out of 10, I think there's an implicit, like, if you see this on the cheap, then don't be afraid to pick it up and see what you think of it, which is, I think, is a, a fine way to use a review score. You almost that's almost like a more useful criteria at the start of a review section it's kind of like a you know what these what these scores are actually saying is like buy it when it's a fiver kind of thing yeah uh, and it's you know this score is going to kind of kick in more in like two years time <laughs> you're going to appreciate this well there's this sense of like you know a lot of people talk about seven you know there are some games you get these sort of seven out of ten games, which are like nine out of tens for some people, and you know they're quite kind of cherished. You know, I used to put the Yakuza games in that in that kind of in that selection. I think they're now kind of you know be above and beyond that and into the realms of like genuine nines or whatever. Um, but yeah, this sort of slightly hard to kind of pin down sense of oh, this is more special than a seven, but it is a seven. Yeah, what do you think? Like a quintessential modern 7 out of 10 game is like if i just asked you straight off the cuff what does a 7 out of 10 look like now yeah i always think i like i, I don't maybe just i got yakuza on the brain like I, I always tend to think of like binary domain right yeah like binary domain i i absolutely love it but i also feel it is a 7 out of 10 hmm. so <laughs> uh that's kind of that that kind of era that that kind of space I'd slot it into. Yeah, um, it's quite a hard thing to pin down. We did a um, RPS podcast all about these seven out of tens, and it was completely baffling for the co-host Nate. Like every game he suggested was just like either terrible or actually too good to be a seven out of ten. <laughs> and it was just like I don't get this stupid criteria, but I know it is. You know it when you see it. Yeah. I was thinking like something like uh, I would always give an EDF game like a seven out of ten. I could never give it higher yeah. than that, but you know, <clears throat> that's a classic seven out of ten series. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, I don't know something like um, Immortals: Phoenix Rising. Do you give that a seven? That seems like a seven kind of. Yeah, that's thing. A se- yeah. I think that's a seven. Yeah. Yeah. So it does end up being quite strange, but um, yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like I think like just having to live with a sort of mag brain for so many years means that like nate was probably the correct one in that situation but the rest of you <laughs> yeah, have been right. so badly warped by um working games media that you were yeah. yeah well i think yeah because rps obviously doesn't have scores as well like a lot of people have written online you're getting into the realms now where they haven't you know learned writing scores or they haven't written scores or they haven't had to score games before hmm. um so it all seems completely baffling and probably quite inane but yeah. I, I love it. I love those numbers. I've still got those numbers in my head when I'm scoring on when I'm reviewing on RPS. <laughs> I've got a really weird example here of a game that, like, I I just I didn't give it a seven out of ten. I gave it six out of ten. But I remember having like conflicted feelings at the time and feeling like people were being slightly unfair to it. So this is a really weird game to sort of stand for. But um, do you remember Eat Lead: The Return of Matt Hazard? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I don't think this is a great game. I gave it a 6 out of 10 for XC60. But, um, and I think it needed like more good jokes for what it was. But I did think that it was it was so unusual and specific. It's the sort of game you would never see now. Like a boxed game that is a parody of other games. Will Arnett voices this kind of like over-the-hill kind of action hero and then encounters lots of um, uh, characters that are spoofs of different um, video game characters. And uh, it was like... 
not considered that funny and got like 53 on Metacritic. But I do remember thinking it was quite a warm-hearted game for what it was. And like, Mm. I almost gave it a 7 out of 10. But I remember thinking, uh, the jokes have to be slightly better to... um, to go with this. Otherwise, if I'd have given it a 7 out of 10, I'd have been at the top of the Metacritic page, and oh, then I would yeah. have had to like live it down. So, um, yeah. You yeah. don't want that. <laughs> Do you, did you play that game, Matthew? Uh, no, I remember like Xbox World reviewing it in the office and just groaning at it the whole time. Because um, <laughs> it kind of committed the kind of cardinal sin of um, making jokes about bad gameplay design and then having that bad gameplay design, which I know is like a, a huge bugbear for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it was like probably the first game to do that though, or at least one of them. And then yeah, it's weird because I remember like people were instantly tired of it because now when anyone does that, everyone's like, "Oh god, not this again!" And you're like, "Well, only like two games do this," so it's kind of it's kind of funny that people are that annoyed. E-Led and um, Far Cry Blood Dragon are those the two? Yeah, off the top of my head. I mean, there's there's probably there's probably some. I do hate it when they're like, "Oh, this is a shit puzzle that you're doing," and you're like, "Yep, it sure is shit." It's funny because I, I think that Far Cry uh, Blood Dragon was a really good little standalone game, particularly if you hadn't played Far Cry 3 and it was just, you know, here's like a mini open world, some cool mm. weapons, quite a nice like reskin of um, what Far Cry is all about. But I think now when um, critics remember that game, they just think about the jokes about tutorials and right. it being a shit tutorial and they're, they're just so anti that that the um, the prospect of being positive about that game just doesn't even enter their minds. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so... Matthew, the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on with the further thoughts on reviews before we get into our games was um, we had a little think about this, but has there been a review in the past that you fiercely disagreed with as a reader, either now or a long time ago? Yeah, I mean, a famous one, and it's like quite a tired one at this point because everyone was annoyed about it back then as well, was the uh, Edge giving Mario Kart Double Dash a 5 out of 10, which was... Mad. I, you know, I bought that game because back then, you know, I was also reading NGC and, you know, they gave it a whatever, nine, you know, nine or high 80s. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, as, as Mario Karts tended to get at that point, it was just another good Mario Kart. And that was probably like my most played game of university. And we played that game loads. And the, the weird thing about that review is like it's 100 it, it's it's correct in everything it says about the game it just doesn't it just didn't uh it didn't like anything it did you know so it, it it identifies that it's where mario kart becomes a bit more of a party game you know it's a bit more kind of silly and madcap but actually that works brilliant you know that's that's why double dash was good but they're just like you know, the review is almost like, oh, Mario Kart is no longer this serious racing game. And you're like, I don't think it ever really was. <laughs> I know. It's not like, it's not like Gran Turismo is suddenly, you know, you're racing as like a monkey and a freaking dinosaur or whatever. It's Mario Kart is just more Mario Kart. You know, it doesn't really have many more modes or anything wildly different to previous Mario Karts. It just delivers that like party split screen atmosphere really, really well. And kind of got punished for that which i never really understood um but that 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 period that kind of early noughties i think was like edge at its um most edge you know the cliched idea of what edge magazine is like is probably based on that period yeah Um, it's definitely had sort of yeah it's definitely had like Fair, much fairer periods. I know, and I've, I've always enjoyed the magazine, and and I, and I like that you do get a sense of a team 
even though they're anonymous, you get a sense of like a collection of values behind it and you can't really pin it on people. Um, but, you know, there were periods of it where it just gelled better for me. You know, when I started at Future, it was around the time that um, Edge had quite a big staff change. You know, it had like Rich Stanton, Martin Davies, Alex Wiltshire came on. It was a great period. Like, you know, my, my tastes just happened to align with theirs. And, you know, I, I thought, I you know, I, I really kind of clicked with what they were saying and thinking about games during that time. So um, it also makes reviewing, reviewing a Mario Kart for Edge is really, really difficult because you've got that, you know, that score in the back. You're like, do I honour this? And that's going back to that question about, um, you know, when you factor in an outlet's criteria, it's is when the magazine has said something that you really disagree with about a past game. Do you honour that opinion? Do you stick with it? Do you score relative to that? I, re- I remember sort of connected to this. Um, I reviewed Dead Island, uh, the first one. I absolutely hated it. I and mean, it's one of my least favourite games that I've reviewed in in the, this period of time. Um, it was so busted, so obnoxious, just so... I, I, I hate everything about that game. And then I had to review the expansion for OXM, and I reviewed it as if it was just a follow-up review to the expansion, uh, to the first game, which I also hated. And so basically carried on my hatred of it without looking into OXM, had rated the first one, or had given it a bit of a pass, because they're like, oh, it's dumb co-op fun. And that's like one of the few times I remember you know, reading the comments where they were like, well, this review is mad because it completely goes against what OXM feels. And I kind of kicked myself for not having looked at it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have said anything different about it, but I may have tackled the review differently, um, giving it the same score, but maybe being a bit more careful, like, oh no, how the mighty have fallen. Even though I didn't think the mighty had fallen, it was just like, it's continued idiot game crawling in the mud for as I was concerned. So, mm, yeah. That's um, that seemed like a kind of raw sort of. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I've seen some people kind of like that game and you know sort of really kind of go to bat for it. But um, yeah, I remember playing a couple of hours and thinking this is not my sort of thing. Also, uh, Dead Island in particular was something where I I felt that that first trailer was so obnoxious. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I hated that. I hated the hype around that trailer. Like I remember like getting an email of the day that that trailer was released saying, oh, have you seen that um, people like Simon Pegg and Zachary Levi are saying, look how good this trailer is. And everyone watched the trailer and were like, well, the game won't be anything like that. And the game wasn't anything like that. And um, yeah. I think that permanently soured me against Dead Island as a game and a series. Um, to the point yeah. where Dead Island 2 tried to do something similar when that was announced, a game that has never come out and I think has changed developers at least twice at this point. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, think I'm making it at the moment. <laughs> In twine, it's a twine. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> a little uh, Dead Island story. I remember a- another person who was reviewing the first game at the same time as me. Um, they had this problem where, like, for a story critical mission, uh, there was this NPC who had to uh, like go and unlock a door for you, but they sort of stopped moving in the middle of this forest, and their save file or whatever had basically saved at that point. That's the only save they had, and there was nothing they could do in the game until this character went and opened the door, and they got in contact with the, the publisher and said, listen, you know, this this problem, this character won't open this door, I don't know what to do. Uh, and they were like, oh, don't worry, this happens a lot, and there is a fix for it. And the fix was you were to get this very specific um, vehicle, you had to drive behind the NPC 
at like three miles an hour and nudge them through this forest to get into the door. If you went too fast, you'd run them over and kill them. If you went too slow, uh, you know, it wouldn't have enough nudging power. So it's drive at like three miles an hour through this forest, pushing this NPC to their trigger point. And I remember thinking, like, that is not a game you can give anything more than three out of ten. Like, if they're like, oh, yeah, that problem. Here's the known solution to that. You're like, that isn't a fix. Yeah. That's madness. I mean, like, what would the patch notes say for that? You no longer have to nudge this prick to his um, objective (laughs) point. Uh, Yeah, I sort of, um, I think that it's hard not to, I mean, I was always very conscious of Outlet's previous scores because as a kind of like nerd kid, I was obsessed with like looking at the kind of um, directory in each of these magazines. Like, this is a real kind of staple of UK mags in particular, where they would have either like a few pages dedicated to their best scores for games or in the early days of consoles it would be easier to have like the entire range of scores this is what the official playstation 2 magazine did and this is why i was like um you know it it was i remember like they'd highlight in bronze if it got 8 out of 10 then gold if it was um if it was 10 and all that stuff and um i used to pour over those scores so when i came to be a critic i was quite conscious of you know i've talked about before on the um i think it was on the game review scores we got wrong episode that I felt like I had to give Metal Gear Solid 4 more than The Darkness um, because <laughs> I just thought, oh, well, you know, the, I kind of got The Darkness wrong, but, you know, Metal Gear Solid 4 is this, like, mega hype kind of PS3 game and, um, you know, ended up kind of just, like, um, sort of, like, breaking the entire system, I suppose. But, you know, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, the, the more awkward conversations I've had with regards to that were, like, lower scores like real beast things like i'm more nervous of an absolute like you know the 10s and the 20s because it's quite hard for a game to get down there i feel like i you know and having played a lot of truly terrible games on the wii and the ds like i feel like i have a good gauge of what a truly like one out of 10 or two out of 10 looks like Mm. and i'm quite distrusting of them when i see them online like i often feel like it's for effect there was a bit of this recently with um, that Balan Wonderworld, Wonderland, the Yuji the Naka one. Wonderworld, yeah. Yeah, Wonderworld, where, you know, there are a couple of people really going all out on, like, this is the worst game I've ever played, which is pure, like, hyperbole, and it just, you know, if it is, then you are very lucky that that's the worst thing you've played. I mean, that's it may only be a 4 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10, but there's a huge gulf between that and a 1 out of 10. And yeah, so that that I had to have a few more kind of like, come on, you know, is this really this or are you just doing this for effect conversations rather than, you know, this is a nine, but I think it's a seven. That didn't happen that often. Yeah, for sure. I had like a few um, reviews to uh, mention of like stuff I disagree with as a kid. Too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. I am. Um, I was like, so this will come up in a future podcast, I'm sure. But um, Final Fantasy X is a game that I was like huge on as a kid. And I remember that was my first encounter with the, like, you know, what might be termed the sort of, like, mega harsh sort of edge reviewing criteria. So they gave it, like, a 6 out of 10, which I actually kind of... I can see why Edge of that time would feel that way. Like, um, there are a few barriers to enjoying that game, like the terrible voice acting that I think that some critics just couldn't quite get over that hump. I found that sort of interesting. Edge's scores generally are um, interesting, actually. I think, like you say, the... um, there was a certain time where they seemed more harsh than at other times, but they actually, like, in 2012, ran a feature on their most controversial scores, 
and like oh, um yeah yeah i don't you you probably remember this because you're at future at the time but like um it's quite interesting i guess the, i guess it was the mag- the uh, magazine equivalent of what we do on this podcast but like um yeah mario kart was one of the ones they re-examined there's a few others here that i thought i'd kind of like uh, pick out as like they're quite interesting scores to read now so dragon age origins got five from edge which I think is is quite harsh, but if you were playing the console version, I don't necessarily. I could see why you would come to that conclusion. the The game is simply not the same to play on a console as it is on PC. But mm-hmm. um, you know, still very low for a game that's got a, a pretty good story, very memorable. Obviously, kicked off this very popular series. Uh, another one here is Borderlands got a six, the original, and um, I don't. I don't know the first. I don't think the first Borderlands is any way near as good as Borderlands Two. Oh, I don't know, but all the fundamentals were there. Like the gunplay felt good, and the the sort of setting did feel fresh at the time. It wasn't as you know, over time, yeah, you know. I think, yeah. I, like I think I gave that like a seven for Xbox World. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I guess I guess opinions on it differ as well. Like, yeah, um, I could I could imagine giving that a six in Edge. Actually, I don't I don't think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember doing that. <laughs> Uh, on the other kind of uh, side of it, they picked out uh, Turok 2 Seeds of Evil, which got a 9. And oh. um, it's quite funny, actually, because this week just saw the release of um, Shadow Man remastered on PC. And I bought it. I've been playing it. I've, did you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shadow Man is so a game that I thought, as a kid, I, one of the first games I remember thinking as a kid, this looks like a kind of like 7 out of 10 game, but every outlet has given it like 90 or like... Oh, it- yeah. It was so like it was so edge lord game because it's like serial killers and you've you're gonna rip this thing open. You know, it was a real like when you're fifteen, it's like an eighteen rated game that you really wanted. Like it, it, it really sort of scratched that itch of I got similar vibes from like Soldier of Fortune. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of like, oh yeah, I'd love some violence. Yeah. Um I owned the original Shadow Man on PC when it came out. Um, yeah, and I bought it again purely for the nostalgia because I wanted to wanted to dip in and remind myself of what it was like. <laughs> yeah, I did the same with the original Turok a few years ago, actually. And like, I will say this for those Night Dive Studios kind of um, redos, they're really, really nice. Like, um, mm. they, they know how to make the games look good on like modern PCs and run well and all that stuff. But um, it's quite funny that they seem to like be doubling down on all of these like acclaim games that yeah. don't haven't really stood the test of time. Um but yeah. So the um I think it was a different Edge feature. Edge did a feature about games that should have been tens, I think. Mm. Um which was separate to that one about scores we got wrong, which were which were like or or it was part of like a you know, an anniversary issue. They did a sort of like a these are maybe tens, and one one of them was interesting because it was it was Red Dead Redemption the first, which I I reviewed for Edge and gave a nine, and I don't think it is a ten. The first one, like I I I, I that is actually a, a review I really was like really proud of. I thought I absolutely had it had it down. Uh, I actually almost gave it an eight. <laughs> what the, ori- um, the original Red Dead? Yeah. Uh, um. Why? Why? <laughs> I, I I really I really hate the end uh, the the last like third of, of Red Dead Redemption one I think I actually don't rate it the wow. uh, which you know which everyone's like this is when games grew up and it's uh, to me it, it didn't really I I don't know like the, the 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 kind of the the kind of Western sort of fancy thing it was kind of tapping into I I, I don't know to end with all that rancid farming again you were like no thank you. <laughs> 
Wow. But I know that they're like, yeah, but I'm grown up. And you're like, yeah, it's boring. What a boring way of, like, that's that's not the end I want of that story. But I am so in the minority on this that I'm glad I didn't give it an A <laughs> on that ground because, you know, that, that ending is, is held to be a classic. But I wouldn't, I still wouldn't give it a 10, I don't think. I think you're misremembering that as the last third of the game as well. That, that's more like the last fifth of the game. Like, it's um, it's a pretty small the, portion. The last of it. sort of chunk of it, you know, the whatever happens in the, you know, that, that, chunk of the map on the far far right well i guess stuff. basically after the big sort of like um snow base snowy mountain base assault basically where you go back yeah. to your farmstead and all that stuff yeah i i but, personally i personally rated that but i don't know people did go on about it a lot so um yeah my sort of bugbear with uh, reviews of red dead is people who were down on the mexico bits to be honest this is more of like a um retrospective oh wasn't mexico bad kind of take on red dead rather than what people were saying at the time the reviews mm. were like all positive for red dead which is um why i'm sort of like uh, straining not to sound too defensive here because i really do love that game i loved it too i loved it to the score of nine out of ten which you know is, is a big score for edge I it's think. pretty good um i just thought i tell you what it, and, and actually it's 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 something they carry on doing i don't want this to turn into like a weird red dead podcast but it, it kind of really bugged me that it had all these mechanics that only existed for like two minutes. So you go to a place, you learn to do something, then you use it for that story mission, and then it basically vanishes and never comes back again. I just thought it was a very sort of like weirdly wasteful game, in mm. a way. Like it felt like it had like yeah gameplay mechanics and equipment that could have been used in other interesting ways, but you know it had like no interest in being a kind of traditional sandbox it was so sort of led through that and the stories were so especially scripted which is obviously true of you know that's just the the rock star direction now and i didn't really have the same problem in red dead 2 even though it's exactly the same it does all those mistakes again it it didn't jump out at me um it jumped out at me more then yeah it's (laughs) maybe i'm completely wrong on the end of red dead i don't know (laughs) No, I don't. I mean, I I think that everyone remembers that as a very sort of like big moment. I sort of um, it's just like it's cat. It's chasing after like horses again. I was like, oh, I'm doing this again. Like, it's like, oh Christ, what a rubbish ending. I understand the epilogue of uh, Red Dead Redemption Two has got a bit of that as well. Um, well, yeah, that... that's the thing, and it really that just. But you know, it's that thing I've mentioned that with Naughty Dog as well. This habit games have now of going like. I'm going to slow it right down because I'm grown up. And you're like, that's such a boring trick. I've seen that now. I, I, people need to stop doing that. It isn't, it isn't classy to have a game that goes one thing and then goes, oh, I'm going to completely zigzag and become incredibly zen because that's how sophisticated I am. It's like there is a sophisticated way of doing like balls out action. You just haven't found it. Um, <laughs> so do that instead of, you know, I don't want the, the game shouldn't build to looking around a house. Like that's... That's just not what I want. Fight yeah. God. I want to fight God in space. <laughs> it's, a good, it's an interesting point. The true dark heart of like Naughty Dog games and Red Dead games is they are games about killing people and it feeling good. Like that's like that is the dark truth of those games. And yeah, I, I appreciate what you mean. Like they're kind of talking around that somewhat by having these sorts of sections. But um, yeah, like wow, you'll, we should, you'll we should... forget the tw- you'll forget the twenty hours of murdering if you do like five minutes of sad guitar strumming at the end, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't you see? Like you you hung out with your son for a while. It doesn't matter if you killed like four hundred dudes and like eighty bears to try and make like a new jacket or whatever. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was... Um, well, we sure went down a rabbit hole there. Yeah, I, I should say that I don't personally think that there's anything wrong with these scores. In fact, I... Um, <laughs> I actually thought that Edge were really good counter-programming to a lot of the mags at the type, time, which were very big on hype. And mm. Edge was a, kind of like a cooler head, sort of um, prevailing sometimes in the midst and of it's that. Like, I think that's the reason the Edge 10 was so exciting. It continues to be exciting, but back then it was a real like, oh, wow, you know, if it's got past these guys, it must be amazing. <laughs> um, the only other thing I was going to raise here, Matthew, is um, that... Metal Gear Solid 2 was the first game where I remember fiercely disagreeing the other way with critics, where it was such... This was like, you know, for the time, the most overhyped game there had ever been, Metal Gear Solid 2. It was, mm. you know, they had this demo with Zone of the Enders. They had been, like, doing these, like, slow drip reveals of the game for, like, two years before it released. And while I think everyone remembers the tanker section very fondly, the um, all of the kind of like facility stuff on that oil rig with uh, Raiden is um, more coolly received, and um, some of the UK mags were a bit discerning about this. Like um, I think PSM and Play were both like gave it like low eighties around there, right. which I think is probably the correct score for the time. But there was there were also a lot of tens, and then I think Edge, uh, sorry, I think uh, Games Master gave it ninety six percent, and mm. Metal Gear Solid Two just. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid 2 wasn't that good. It was one of the first games I played and thought, well, I I know there are like loads of good ideas in this, and I know that the sort of stealth simulation stuff is really good, but uh, it's a really sh- it's a really short game, and fucking loads of it is about defusing bombs with like coolant spray, <laughs> and <laughs> and like I just I remember it was one of the first games things. Games Master I- love coolant spray. <laughs> Everyone knows this. It was. It probably just seemed so lofty and like ambitious, and obviously a lot of people talk about how prescient it was, and and discussing the kind of like age of misinformation. All of that stuff is in there, but I mean, I don't think it makes a game better being in there. It's just like, yeah. it's like, oh look, I I decided to attach my like thesis, um, you know, in the kind of like read me of a game, and it's like, well, I didn't, I don't necessarily need that to enjoy it more, and I think that. You just sort of um, you didn't get the same level of like fun stealth action experience that you did in the original MGS, and it wasn't very replayable either. The second game, so um, I remember mm. that being like one occasion where I was um, quite down on critics' um, take on that one. Do you have any memories of that, Matthew? I felt I, I know we've talked about this before in the podcast, and again, like I'm very much in a minority on this. I sort of felt that way about uh, Time Splitters because they were so critically lauded, and that the game just isn't for me like i can appreciate what time splitters is and what it's doing it's just not my cup of tea and that was where i realized like oh all these 90s 90 doesn't necessarily mean i am going to love it um it just meant everyone on this mag loved it and so that yeah those, those sort of jump out as like purchasing decisions but then likewise i bought things which had been slammed and then yes they were shit and i should have just listened i was i was rotten for buying james bond games um (laughs) even though they were all terrible after goldeneye of being like yeah maybe this will be the one and then the mag score it would be like it's a little bit 70 and i'd be like maybe i'll be the pun who likes it nope All right, so um, yeah, uh, Matthew, I was wondering if you had any more thoughts on like game review scores that you um, were sort of down on. You, how you noted in our uh, show notes, you've got Mario 3D World. Did you yeah, have anything I, on that? I was only mentioning this one because I I, I thought I, IGN very recently gave it quite a stingy seven out of ten. The Switch re-release, um, 
which sort of at the time I it sort of I hadn't when I hadn't played it I went hmm mm, it seems a bit seems a bit harsh like the review seemed quite down on this game which was you know it was like a lower score than they gave it when it originally came out even though it's now better and has an extra bit um now that i've played the extra bit because i got it for my birthday a couple of weeks ago i thought it was absolutely fantastic i thought bowser's fury was great i really really enjoyed it um so that that seven's pretty harsh i think but you know it's a seven it's not like a five but I thought I'd, I just wanted to flag up that I really like Bowser's Fury. That's cool. Yeah, we should talk about that more on our uh, next episode um, when mm. we discuss stuff we've been playing this year. But uh, yeah, cool. So in which case, Matthew, we'll take a brief break and then we're going to come back with the uh, game review scores that we got right, or according to us anyway. Matthew, welcome back. It's time. Oh, thanks. To, uh, <laughs> this this happens on every single podcast, and uh, <laughs> I never know how to start the next section. So, this is where we talk about the game review scores we got right. So, I have fewer than Matthew here, but we're going to do the same thing we did on game review scores we got wrong, where we alternate one by one. Eventually, I'll run out, and then Matthew can just talk on and on about the games that he um, <laughs> he he reviewed. So, I think it'll be fun. So, first up, Matthew, I'm going with my Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain review score of ninety three percent. I gave for PC Gamer in 2015. So, Hmm. I don't think this is an overtly controversial score. The reason I've put it in here is because the discourse about this game being unfinished really fucking pisses me off. Um, Basically, what people are upset about is the fact that there is a a cut chapter or two that resolves the story of um, Liquid Snake in the game. There's a young boy called Eli who's running around. It's the clone of... uh, big boss it's you know it's it's who would grow up to be liquid snake and there is a cut chapter where he's in a mech and you fight him in a mech i believe that's what they did and um it didn't make it out to release but they talked about it on one of the making of dvds i don't know if that's the one where you featured on the documentary about the game matthew (laughs) Uh, let's hope so um you know, uh, you know, just I love by the way that uh, you have an IMDb page. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's rad. <laughs> and it's just and it's just the picture of me from that documentary. <laughs> yeah, that's something that uh, we learned via uh, one of our uh, listeners on Twitter. So thank you for that. That was hilarious. Um, so yeah, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain. Like, um, I think that there was such a push and pull with this one of um, how traditional Metal Gear Solid fans felt about the story in this game, which was, you know quite poorly represented there isn't much of it there is it feels like there's deliberately few cutscenes in there whether that's because they didn't have much time with Kiefer Sutherland or not is hard to determine um Mm. but nonetheless it's very pared back compared to the story of the um, PS2 games for example so I think that some people struggled with that but like um I was very keen to reward it as a sort of like a rich stealth simulation game where I feel like um it's extremely complete by comparison so People are upset about the story being cut short, but I don't think there was anything like significant content-wise that really went. And um, if you've done the Sally Anthropus boss fight in uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, you'll know that mech fights are not the um, the strongest suit of the game. It really mm. is just about those kind of like you know going around um, Afghanistan or the um, Angola Zaire border. Is that right? Mm. And um, basically just like you know tormenting soldiers at outposts and um doing Except funny to a shit. banging 80 soundtrack exactly yeah sending in your dog to like kill a guy with a knife and calling in your bikini sniper to headshot a dude i mean yeah very silly game but um it's <laughs> like um i think it's actually a very complete feeling game when you factor in the idea that 
you can keep unlocking tools like long after you finish the main missions you can keep going and keep doing um more stuff and unlocking kind of like weird hand attachments for snake and um <laughs> weapon upgrades and stuff like that uh, so yeah i think that even though people might have turned on this game a little bit and are still down on the fact that the story doesn't give them everything they want it to i i stick with 93 percent. i think that was correct what do you think matthew yeah, I, I think so. I actually, I gave this a 10 in OXM, so, you know, I, I was big behind it. I, I stand by it. I think it's the best game Kojima's made as a technical game to play. Um, it may not tick all your boxes, like, lore and cutscene-wise, but that's not really my favourite thing. Like, I'm, I'm much more interested in Kojima, the kind of stealth game trickster, than Kojima, the, you know, visionary. Yeah, I mean... I just, uh, like, to, to ignore, like, you, there's so much good you have to ignore to be upset with this game. As, a, as an actual, like, stealth game, it's, it's just phenomenal, like, one of the best, if not my favourite stealth game of all time. Um, and, you know, it's got more actual game to play than the entire Metal Gear series combined. So, just about. Um, yeah. I felt the same thing. I mean, this was this was an interesting one in that, like, we got to play it early and review it before it came out on, on the mag we did anyway. So, like, I there was no idea of the discourse at all that was going to emerge from it. I remember just thinking, like, coming out of that review session, because we, we played it for a week. It was a week-long review event. I remember just sitting there and coming out and being like, wow, that was just absolutely phenomenal. What an amazing thing. Everyone's going to love this so much. And then they were all complaining because it didn't have something that they saw in a second of a trailer or something. And you were like, oh, okay, you know, these people are thickos. And what can you do? You know, it's just, <laughs> you can't deal with someone that stupid. Um, yeah, it's a great game. I can sort of like, the only thing I could maybe sympathize with was if you add it, you know, this sense of like this is going to be it this is kojima's last go of it and you know the fact that it's a prequel meant it could only do so much mm. you know you weren't going to get new you know it wasn't going to go anywhere new because it was working towards a set ending and i i think the you know maybe if it has a, a big story flaw it has the big story flaw that all prequels have in that you know they're kind of quite kind of hemmed in with what they can actually do but that's basically it. Yeah, I think the real tragedy of this game is that we didn't get to see what the next version of it would have been. Like, there was the foundation here to build, you know, a far even, like, richer games and more exciting mm. stealth games in different settings. It's all there. Like, finally, um, you know, Kajim Red come up with, like, a, a very sort of modern-feeling stealth game that could have, like, lasted the test of time. Really nice-feeling movement and shooting. It was all perfect. Mm. It just... Um, yeah, it's a shame that it didn't really go anywhere, but um, I suppose it went to Metal Gear Survive, which uh, we'll have, um, if we ever get Stanton on the podcast, we'll have to have him talk about Metal Gear Survive. But um, <laughs> why don't you hit me with one of yours, Matthew? Uh, so I'll kick off with Wii Music, um, the much maligned Wii Music, which I gave 89%. <laughs> nice. Uh, this is, I, I, I do st- stand by that, that's why this is in this podcast, Um I think Wii Music was really, really misunderstood. I think it came sort of not not I guess sort of towards the tail end of like the big plastic instrument boon. I think people had such a an a set idea in their head of how a music rhythm game was meant to behave. It was basically meant to be uh, Guitar Hero, and you hit cues set to like amazing blockbuster tunes. 
this was a game um much more about like improvisation um it's much more about like the creation of music it's not just about delivering someone else's tune perfectly by hitting buttons it's about making a tune perfectly with your actions i really like the vibe and attitude i thought it was really interesting that someone was taking that approach to a music game i think it showed us that games didn't just have to be guitar hero or rock band it taps into the way you hum along to a tune or you tap out a little tune when you you know the way you play you know little drums with your fingers or whatever when you're listening to a tune the big flaw of this game is it does all that with this terrible soundtrack of like verging on like nursery rhymes it's all a little bit like my grandfather's clock and oh christmas tree right. um, which that's a hard sell. It feels naturally kiddish, but and 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 I get that. I get that's something people can get over. But I felt a lot of people just reviewed this and went, "Oh, it isn't like Guitar Hero. I don't like it." And that is how a lot of the reviews read. I had a really good time playing it. I mean, this was a really this was quite a funny review trip actually because I remember going to play it in the uh, the Wii flat, which is what they 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 had the Wii house when the Wii launched. But after a few years, they downgraded to the Wii flat. Um, and I went there at the same time. I think Alex Dale was reviewing Disaster Day of Crisis, which was this ridiculous um, kind of natural disaster. Kind of you're escaping from a city and there's like earthquakes and hurricanes and tidal waves. And he was playing it on one TV. I was playing Wii Music on the other TV. We had a huge bowl of sweets between us. So we were both off our, <laughs> out of our heads on the on like you know drumsticks <laughs> um, which maybe factored into it we had um like that was an amazing tr- tr- that was an amazing review time we had playing that playing those two games him trying to do this this blockbuster survival experience while i was like honking out the super mario's tune with like a cat meows or something on my tv it's one i almost um bought on ebay a little while ago it goes for very cheap and i did I think in my head, I always kind of wonder if this is the game where a lot of people's sort of frustration with Nintendo of this era, they sort of took out on this game a little bit. That's not to say that like people were disingenuous about their opinions on the game, but I do wonder if this represented a bit of a bum note to people of what Ninten- the, the Nintendo of that era was. Do you think I'm onto something there, or is that a bit... Um, yeah, that there's, a, bit a, there's a bit of that. I'm, we were like... We were a little bit out of the honeymoon period. There was the, you know, we cause we had this initial rush of like Twilight Princess, Galaxy, Metroid Prime Three, which was really exciting. Then it all got a little bit Wii Fit, Wii Music, and the very the bad Animal Crossing on Wii. So yeah, I mean, that there was de- that was definitely part of it. Yeah, it's tough because I remember like um, reading the magazines my mum read at the time and seeing like adverts for Wii Fit and thinking. Uh, I mean, like, I, I kind of, um, I respect the, um, the fact that games did manage to extend beyond their sort of like core audience, but it obviously didn't stick over time, and so I do wonder if overall it was something of like a, I don't know, a, a briefly successful experiment and not much more than that. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, for Wii Music, I just, yeah, I, gen- I, g- I genuinely like this one. Yeah, I thought like I wasn't just reviewing it from a, you know, I'm going to give it bonus points for like trying to kind of, you know break the mold or anything I, I really did you know connect with it and like it i wouldn't have scored it you know that highly otherwise mm. um mm. yeah but it's, it's i know it's it's probably like the score i think more people disagree with this than they disagree with red steel in a way mm, okay fair enough yeah 
I think that um, yeah, this might come up in a future episode of Games Court. We'll just have to uh, <laughs> have to see. Likewise, Disaster Day of Crisis. That was a monolith soft game, wasn't it? Yeah, Disaster Day of Crisis is, is actually like good fun. That's a good seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah, perfect. There we go. Um, yeah. There we go. The uh, aftermarket for that game is about to spike by 50 pence. Um, <laughs> cool. All right. So next up for me, Matthew, uh, I reviewed Resident Evil 5 on PlayStation 3 for play back in 2009. I gave it 89%. So this is considered the entry in the series where Resi goes off the boil, or at least that's the kind of prevailing narrative. So... In Resident Evil 4, you obviously had this um, reinvention of the series with a kind of over-the-shoulder, third-person action sort of point of view. I would say that Resident Evil 4 is most is like about 80% an action game, and then there's a 20% of like the movement is quite stiff or your kind of resource stuff that makes it a bit more like a survival horror. But basically, it was mm. an action game. Resident Evil 5 is perceived as the one where it went full action, and I won't contest that at times it does feel that way. You have some enemies who have guns. You have some bits where there are like there's cover and a cover system. However, I think it's a really fucking good co-op game, and it has like the best version of mercenaries that they ever did for the series. Mm. So I have a lot of affection for it. There's like a bunch of there's a bunch of problems with it. The um to repeat the campaign now it has weird it does have like weird long kind of pacing issues. It goes it gets really fucking bizarre. Like um. You end up in all these temples where there are boulders rolling around and stuff, and you kind of wonder what sort of game you're actually playing. Um, and also there's like... How do I put this? How do I put this? There are tone issues with this game. Um, <laughs> it's like, this was even brought up at the time, like, you know, and it's... it's. I would say at, at the kind of... At the least, it's insensitive. And <laughs> there's like, you know, the, the, the choice of setting, the choice of like a the kind of choices in terms of where they take you in the game and how they portray certain moments is, oh, yeesh. It's definitely like a bit of a yikes thing. So yeah, I think that there are some real issues with Resident Evil 5, for sure. But I think this game actually like actually rules. And there's like, particularly the Mercenaries mode, which I've been playing with a friend for like 12 years. You know, every time we hang out, we yeah. always play this Mercenaries mode. There's a bunch of great maps for it. You fight waves of enemies, try and build up these score combos. It's a proper, like, you know, try and hold out as long as you can. Keep collecting time. Um, you can min-max it. So uh, if you're playing as Wesker, you can basically headshot, melee attack, headshot, melee attack, and keep accumulating time that adds onto the clock where you can perpetually keep the game going if you're skilled enough. And mm. um, there are loads of good, like, um, sort of hacks for... Uh, active reloading like quickly reloading your gun using a different system in the game and this sort of stuff i think that resident Evil 5 is like much maligned but um yeah even though i definitely won't to defend the tone side of it i just acknowledge that's like a serious flaw with the game i really fucking like this as a co-op experience so uh mm. yeah that's my resi 5 take do you play this one Matthew? yeah i need because I, I remember this one at the time like what a diff i mean a difficult difficult act to follow you know and you'll you're basically following what at the time and 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 it still is to many people held as like one of the if not the greatest action games of all time you know ev everyone was so pumped for whatever followed resi 4 yeah i can I, it's, it's a weird one i because i didn't play this at the time i didn't play this until years later when they re-released it um on the xbox one actually so i didn't even play it on 360 at the time but i yeah i remember like people being reasonably down on it 
on the kind of campaign, thinking it was quite like short and throwaway. Um, and actually, it wasn't till kind of getting to know you and like you talking about your love of mercenaries, like that this kind of game even kind of re-entered my brain as like, a, oh yeah, there's this that you know, I I do know someone who really rates this game and really rates this mercenaries mode and yeah, so like I kind of. I, 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 this sounds this sounds perfectly all right to me. <laughs> yeah, it runs uh, really nicely on the modern consoles too. That version mm. they did um, for Xbox One and PS4 is um, is really nice. In fact, I think I re-reviewed it for uh, you when you were um, editor of XM. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I, uh, I really rate it. Like again, I definitely won't deny that there are like problems with the you know with like the optics of this game. Like definitely mm. agree with that. But um, when people talk about how good Mercenaries is uh, when it comes to Resident Evil, I think they're actually talking about this game. They're talking about the way that this game did Mercenaries. I think that the Resi 4 version was like the kind of embryonic sort of version of what they do here, which is like one of the best co-op modes in any game. And um, yeah. it, was, I mean, it was enough yeah. that they re-released it as a standalone game on 3DS. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it was substantial enough to do that. Oh man, that's such a disappointing um, version of Mercenaries, that 3DS game. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, it was technically impressive for the time. So uh, yeah. yeah, but that's my that's my piece on Resident Evil Five, Matthew. What's uh, your next one? Uh, so I was going to a little shout out for Infinite Space, which I gave ninety two, and I was obsessed with Infinite Space, which is a uh, space RPG from Platinum and Nude Maker, um, who I know very little about other than they're called Nude Maker, which I think is a great name for a studio. This is, like, on paper, not my cup of tea, because it's, like, proper sort of sort of epic sci-fi kind of space opera stuff, which isn't really my, isn't, isn't really my, like, vibe at all. It's about building spaceships and going into these huge space battles. Very, like... Uh, kind of like a Battlestar Galactica type ship, like this huge like ship with all these, you know, thousands of people on it. What I really loved about this was one, it was really really funny. Like it had a like a it completely took me by surprise, like how weird and sort of zany its vision of space was. You know, there was like a enemy who lived inside basically a planet that was a giant disco ball and things like that. Mm. Um, and it had this big huge cast like you could recruit like you know 160 different people and some a lot of them like factored in or folded into the cutscenes. um a bit like what's the rpg series with the loads of party members oh um sweet sudikon yeah yeah so it kind of had a little bit of that energy the combat in this game is absolutely fascinating because it's it's almost like rock paper scissors in that you've got two sort of ships quite far apart and they're kind of shifting into range. You've got very limited control. It's not like a proper spaceship simulation or anything. It's you basically kind of control energy to move closer. Then you've got weapons that fire when you're in different ranges. But what's amazing about this very simple, like you know, five or six inputs in combat is how the ship you build is really reflected in how it behaves in combat. So you you basically piece together a ship, like a jigsaw puzzle of rooms and compartments. So you can basically fill a ship with engines, for example, so it can move really, really fast. But then it's guns, you know, that's less space for guns. So you may be able to get in, like, close range within, like, seconds at the start of the battle, but you'll be able to do less when you're there. Or you can fill your ship with, like, 
um, domestic compartments, so it's got a huge crew. Then you can fill those uh, fill boarding ships with those crew and just try and take down the enemy by like boarding them instead. And I really loved how like every minute decision you did on this very complex shipbuilding element of the game kind of did have a really tangible impact on this combat system, which seemed very simple on the surface. Um, so yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic, but it is also like very fiddly and like quite difficult. It had some huge difficulty spikes, but this was one where like a lot of review. I like I definitely the highest score for this on Metacritic. I'm absolutely sure of it. You know, it scored a lot lower elsewhere. I reading the reviews, I could just see people. I could see the point in the review where they just hit a you know a difficulty spike and not kind of punch through it, or they'd sort of screwed themselves over with a save file, because you had to be quite careful with where you saved in this. And so it had, and, and they'd just given up on it, you know? They just hadn't given it a chance, and I felt like it, it really, uh, it really didn't get the love it deserved. I think this is like, you know, probably like my hidden gem, like the hidden gem of three, of DS. Um, but, yeah, I just don't know if, if, I don't know what you know. I am. I am. I give up on games when they're difficult all the time. Like I've got very low appetite for huge difficulty spikes. But for whatever reason, I, I could, could kind of push on with this one. And yeah, I, I just thought this was amazing. Um, like it's, it's a shame that it's, it's kind of you know it would be great on PC with you know being able to click around the mouse, you know, build the ship with like mouse, mouse clicks instead of the stylus or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't think we'll ever ever see any version of Infinite Space again. Yeah, it was part of the um, platinum steel with Sega, right? It was one of the uh, yeah. four or five games. And um, uh, did this come before Vanquish? This one around the same time. Yeah, it was uh, definitely it, came after Mad World. But I wonder, like, how it even came to be. Like, it's a really um, odd type of game for platinum to be sort of involved yeah. with. Um, but yeah, like, um, I've always thought sort of thought of it as a hidden gem. I own it, but I haven't played it still. Um, and it's it's huge. I mean, it's like not not like a hundred hours, but it's it's you know tens and tens and tens and tens of hours, and it, it sort of keep, just keeps going and unfolding. Gets a bit more galaxy brain as it goes on. Mm. Well, I think you'll find it's Matthew really good. that this kind of ship customization was already done ably by the Kingdom Hearts series and the Gummy Ship system. Where you could, um... <laughs> it's way more complicated than the gummy ship. <laughs> well, it's more complicated than building a tower of guns with a cockpit on top and a booster at the back, which is um, basically what I built when I was a kid. But uh, yeah, there's there's a scene there's a scene in it where you go to this bar and you all get really drunk after you've just done this big mission, and it kind of does like it sort of flashes through the night at various states of drunkenness, and there's a point where like one of your a male member of crew is put on a female member of crew's clothes and he gets kidnapped by these like space barbarians who are passing through because they think he's some sort of beautiful lady um and then you have to go and save. then the mission becomes you have to go and save this guy and as you're cutting to, as you're chasing off this ship it keeps cutting to the barbarian ship with this guy in this dress being like oh man what am i gonna do you know i'm really hung over and this this is gonna be terrible for me and he comes in, and the barbarians are like, you know, we, we, you know, we're gonna sort of do what we like with you. And he says, "Wait, wait, I'm not a lady. I'm actually a man." And they stop for a second, and then they say, "Even better," um, which I always thought was just—it made me howl with laughter um, at these sort of like weird pervy characters. It's a great I, game. I think that like um, that just sounds like if they ever made Yakuza in space, that's what this would be. 
Um, I tell you what, it's yeah, it's got a bit of that in it. It's it's the platinum side of it. It's just that it's really mad and fun and like funny. If I had to um, challenge you to like name one game it's comparable to, so like, say you're listening to this and you're sort of curious about it, what else is it kind of like? Is there a kind of a comparison point for this one? Like, should you play this if you like Stellaris or like Endless Space or something or Homeworld or is it? It's just like so. No, it sounds so different. It's, 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 it's so much simplified compared to those. That's the thi- that's that's the thing. It's it's not a simulation. It's not like Elite or anything like that. It's you know, it's like hitting these big buttons if anything it's got more like closer energy to like a um <laughs> it's not like this but that what's that that mech game with the huge controller oh uh steel battalion yeah it's almost got a bit more of that vibe in that you're hitting these big like chunky interface buttons to control the ship you know it's a bit more like you know f- hit, hit the giant fire button we fire like our huge kind of like uh, you know onslaught of of missile launches at them it's kind of got quite a big anime energy to it. Oh man, I, w- I really want to play this now. Like um, we've talked about the idea of doing a uh, DS Hidden Gems episode as well. Um, so uh, yeah, to coincide with the um, sequel to The World Ends with You coming out this year. So who knows? Maybe this will come up again in the future. Probably when we get mm. to the lists of our different years. I'm I'm sure too. Um, cool. Next up then for me, Matthew is Batman Arkham Knight, which I reviewed for Games Radar in 2015 and gave four out of five. So. This one, I didn't really do... When I was editor of PC Gamer, I didn't do many reviews for other outlets because, uh, honestly, making a magazine and partly making a website was enough for my um, for my energy levels. But <sighs> I was kind of considered like the Batman guy, and I think I still am a little bit. Um, so I sort That makes of... it sound like you are Batman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I was really determined to review this one because um, I think that... For, I can't remember now what the what happened with the PC version. I think it came out, then it got pulled. But I feel like we didn't get review code for it beforehand. I don't think we did, and then it it was um, it was just kind of a mess. But um, console review code was kind of floating around, so I ended up doing it for Games Radar. So I th- I think everyone thought or hoped this game would be amazing. I think some people were a bit down about the Batmobile generally as a kind of concept. This was obviously mm-hmm. fundamental to this game. The previous games were you just play as Batman in these increasingly like large worlds. First one set in the asylum. Second one set in like a sort of um feel it does it does feel like a kind of full city open world. It's not massive, but like it does have very distinct districts and it looked really nice. And then this one was like the open world game with your car. You can drive around. There's all these different islands you can go to. And um, it was quite a tricky one to sort of review because I had a few problems with it. One, I thought that the tank combat wasn't very good. We've talked about this on a previous episode. I think it was on yeah. um, Games of the Generation. Um, mm. It was like it was not terrible, but it was like... And like you said, it wasn't so hard that you couldn't do it. It was just... Um, I just don't think it had the same sort of like depth that the... Uh, the combat or the stealth did, um, mm. and that was a drawback. But my main problem with this one was the story. So mm. it makes a big deal about uh, the character Jason Todd. I don't know if people know Batman lore that well, but Jason Todd is the Robin who was uh, killed by the Joker. He was like um, voted to death by like a premium phone line poll in the <laughs> oh, late eighties. What a way to go! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's how I'd want to go. Um, <laughs> and so he was beaten to death by. Um, by the joker in like a desert it was a really like grim storyline then years later they brought him back for um 
uh, Return of the Red Hood, I think it was called, this 2005 storyline that was big into when I was a comic reader. And they decided to, like, do a riff on that in Arkham Knight. But the problem was that they didn't, they hadn't established any previous um, Jason Todd connection in the story. And mm. so I felt like they'd made the crux of um, this game's story around that, but hadn't put in the legwork to make it pay off. So I actually thought it was quite a weak story overall for these games. When I actually thought the, um, I thought the stories in Arkham Asylum and City were really strong, actually. And mm. this, I felt like, sort of lost it a bit on the. Um, on the narrative side, even though it has some really good side quests. And mm. I think that, um, yeah, even when I reflect on it now, I would, uh, this, I would give, you know, Arkham city probably a nine, but this, this, this did deserve four out of five. It wasn't like, um, it wasn't a nine out of 10 game, even though it was like astonishing to look at at the time. Um, mm. so yeah, I think this is a correct score factoring in the Batmobile and the fact that I had those problems with its story. Um, anything further to add on that one, Matthew? No, I, I think I've said on before. Like, I, I actually, I don't, I don't mind the Batmobile myself. Like, I think I like it more than most. Um, I think this, this is. I actually do prefer this one to the second one. I think, mm. but mainly because it's just, it's so flashy and it's just so gorgeous. And like, they do do some mad stuff in this game um, on a technical level. God, I hope their next game's good. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of wish again, like wish someone would just make a Batman game again. It's um, it's weird that's yeah. a series that's just gone away. But um, oh well. You're like, yep, yeah, we never made a bad one, so let's stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now seems like a good time to never make another one. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure about um, it's just been such a long wait for them to make anything else. I have no idea what the Suicide Squad game will be, but um, I mm. guess we will see. What's your next one, Matthew? Uh, next one is Castlevania: Order of Ecclesia, which like. Castlevania felt like it was quite a big thing in the in the first couple of years of Endgamer because they were coming off this quite amazing run, or they were still having this amazing run. Old Igarashi was still at Konami, was doing the handheld games, basically continuing the kind of family line from Symphony of Night. Um, you'd had that amazing run of Game Boy Advance. Uh, that continued on to DS, Dawn of Sorrows. Absolutely fantastic, like one of my favourite DS games. And then they started to decline after that. Well, I felt like they started to decline, but this is this is where the review sort of sort of split. There was Portrait of Ruin, which I didn't really rate. Um, kind of dumped the big castle for quite this bitty system. We jumped through magical paintings into like smaller worlds, and then Order of Ecclesia, which people like really rated this one. Like it was held as you know at the time. I remember some of the other reviews saying like. You know, this is up there with Symphony of the Night, where I I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as Dawn of Sorrow. I gave it seventy five. I was actually like, if anything, I you know, I think at the time I I was tempted to give it lower. But there's 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 like a certain level of craft in it with like the sprite work and you know I love the music and the look of the thing. So you know I, I felt like it was a bit a bit mean to to kind of go any lower on that. Um, the big problem I have with this series is that Dawn of Sorrow had a huge castle and then it basically abandoned that uh, for like smaller self-contained levels in Portrait of Ruin. And then Order of Ecclesia had this huge castle in the second half. Um, wasn't as good or as big as Dawn of Sorrow's. Um, but the first half of the game with these terrible linear spaces, which were literally, they weren't even platforming levels. They were just like five connected rooms of flats with quite a generic background so it'd be like the beach or the coast or uh, that's the same thing 
or a forest or whatever. And you were just walking left to right, grinding away on enemies. Like, it just had no... It was... You know, it felt like a test room for, like, character movement. It just had no shape to it at all. And it was like that for the first chunk of the game. I remember thinking, this is so bad. And, like, no one else seemed to care. Like, there was so much... uh, In the other reviews, there was such a focus on, like, oh, it's really difficult. I loved how difficult it was. There was a real, like, willy-waving with this one that I just... I I can't stand in reviews. Like, that's just so tedious to me. Yeah, I I, I I thought this was like this was a, it felt like a, a series in decline, but I felt no one else seemed to think that. Um, I don't know why I was going if I was just going mad, but yeah, I, I but I, I I still think I I got this one right, and I actually think like the Bloodstained is better. Yeah, I really like Bloodstained a lot. You know, I don't think it's quite up there with like his best Castlevania games on that he made, but it's. You know, I preferred it to Order of Ecclesia for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I can't say I'm that familiar with the Castlevania games, but um, does it? Yeah, so, they were like, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just weird. Like they, they were a big thing. Like they were, they were huge, and they were so. They happened so often. You know, they were making like one every two years, and they were a pretty good standard. And they were making them on handheld, so it felt like there was a lot of like a lot of love and attention for a DS game. You know, this was quite a quite a nice thing. This was like Konami, good Konami doing good things and you know him leaving Konami you know he's the kind of you know one of the first big sort of scalps which then kind of accumulate to the point that now they only make Pez um, <laughs> which is which is a thing that's happened but yeah. at the time this felt like quite an odd one like wow this guy who's really associated with this thing is no longer there but it, then it just happened more and more um, yeah I just yeah I, I just yeah. I'm I'm low on Metacritic for this one, but I think I'm right. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I always got the sense that this is a genre that had um, more fans in the US than it had in Europe. It seemed like the Metroidvania kind of games did just, I don't know, they seemed to just be a bigger deal. When you see the press talking about games from that era, they kind of come up more. Um, do you think that's fair, or do you think that um, I just... Uh, yeah. yeah, Yeah, I think there's a... a a big appetite for these things. I think, like, Castlevania particularly, like, felt like it was quite key part of, like, a lot of games journals sort of, like, NES upbringings. Mm. So it's kind of ingrained more over in the States. Like, I don't know, it felt like more part of the package over there than it wasn't necessarily bundled in, but then it did over here. Um, Yeah, there's there's definitely that. It's just really weird how many of the reviews of this were basically like bigging up the game's difficulty to then say, you know, but I did it, of course. You right. know, it just felt like a, a something doesn't happen very often anymore. Like that, there was a bad, there was more of a trend for it of like people with a bit of a chip on their shoulder trying to prove something in their reviews, kind of like fifteen years ago than than there is now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there was a games journalist who used to uh, who would go unnamed. He's infamously print a picture of the last boss in a lot of his reviews just to be able to as like a look i did it i got there uh, i've um, i've been kind of like eyeballing the um uh castlevania games on ds and ebay and that's useful knowledge that dawn of sorrow is the only one that's worth kind of like I, what dawn of sorrow is like exceptionally good that mm. that's the difference these ones these ones are fine they're not like actively horrible but like that is the best one cool if you want a big castle to explore, which I think is quite key to Castlevania. <laughs> well, yeah, there's something about the name that suggests that should be... Uh... <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So my next one is um, Medal of Honor 2010. Um, so oh, I yeah. gave this uh, 7 out of 10. 
It was a review for X360 magazine. I was on Sci-Fi Now at this point, so I'd been roped in to review it. But I think I played a bunch of the multiplayer, but the single player was like the main thing I played. Like it was the single player was um, around the time that loads of publishers were trying to figure out what their version of Call of Duty was. And it mostly resulted in a load of like quite rancid, boring military shooters. Um, Mm. I think very few of them actually understood why Call of Duty was really good, which is like we kind of said on our um, on a previous episode. I think it was the best game in 2007. It was like. Basically, modern warfare was at its best when you felt like you were in a James Bond film, and mm. instead it felt like they were going for these sort of like very sort of boring military sort of thriller vibes. Yeah, I remember just um, I remember like being reasonably hyped for this because I think EA made a big deal about the fact that Medal of Honor had been away for a few years, and oh, here we go with this tier one operator kind of like big reboot. You know, roped in dice to do the multiplayer. The multiplayer was better received than the single player, but um. Yeah, I, I remember this being an extremely boring um, campaign shooter with one moderately interesting helicopter turret sequence. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? I, no, I, I didn't. Was, was this the one with like the big bearded man on the cover? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I think I remember someone telling me about a press trip for this where they had like some of these, these uh, op- whatever tier one operators are, um, <laughs> to interview them. And that they had... Um, but they're like super secretive people. Like you're not allowed to even see their faces or hear their voices. <laughs> they had to like interview them in this room where they were like behind a sheet or something and, and mask their voices. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, what's this? What are you worried that this game journalist is going to work out who you are and then what? Like kill you? <laughs> like what? what? Why do you have to hide your identity from a games journal? That doesn't make any sense. Very odd behavior. Yeah. My question is, how did EA even contact them in the first place? <laughs> like, where do you get that intel from? Like, um, Maybe it's like, they say getting in contact with Bill Murray, you just have to phone this answering machine, and then <laughs> occasionally he gets back to you. <laughs> or like, it's like that. Or just go to like a house party in Milwaukee, and then maybe he'll turn up, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, the, that's, that's the danger, is you're ringing up asking for help, and you don't know if you're asking for help from a tier one operator or Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, I mean, depending on whether you're making a game or if you're on a military mission, it could have a very different vibe and outcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I say, I, my reason I flagged this is because it, it was the pure sort of like seven out of ten reviewing experience, and like, um, I remember just being super down on a lot of these games that were trying to be Call of Duty at the time, like Homefront, and um, mm. I think like I don't think. Well, Battlefield Bad Company, people like their campaigns a little bit more, but they weren't really for me. When we kind of, um, on this podcast, were generally quite nostalgic about this particular period of games, the sort of early HD era, but Call of Duty clones, no, I mean, obviously most of them failed. We don't really have, they don't really exist anymore. It's, um, they all kind of like went away, but yeah, Medal of Honor, just uh, eh kind of game. So what's your next one, Matthew? Uh, my next one is uh, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance which I gave a 7 out of 10 in OXM. Mm. I actually think it reads lower than that, the review. I did give it a 7. I'm not saying they bumped it up or anything. Um, I thought this was a really muddled game in that it was this kind of combination of Platinum and Konami, but my big beef with this is I think those two studios at that time stood for very different things, and I thought they were completely at odds with each other. There are times where it's got amazing 
pacing and fun action of a platinum game but then whenever it hits any kind of like metal gear stuff like attempts at stealth or the story it just it just absolutely like killed it dead on the spot um this game is just so stop start has a couple of hours in the middle where it's absolutely brilliant where you're just you know you're really going for it and you've you've kind of mastered the kind of the the cool chopping which is great the whole slow-mo and then slice things up into lots of sort of bits of ham which is fun um but um it was like it's this weird marriage of the two in that it's it's got the grittiness is maybe the wrong word but the, the the kind of the more the slightly more kind of like conservative element of like metal gear solids world design in that it's sort of set in like military bases and office buildings so it lacks a bit of like platinum's kind of zip for settings and it, i think it also has like arguably like the worst like third act of a, of a platinum game which is normally where platinum games absolutely explode and go wild you know you have this kind of stretch in the middle which is really fun and then you hit this terrible end sort of there's a few boss fights in a row, and it ends with my least favourite Platinum boss fight, which is the sort of the senator character, which drives me at the wall because everyone memes this guy to death because of the whole nano machine son, but he's absolutely shit, and it is a shit fight, it's a shit level. The worst ending to a Platinum game by far. Yeah, this game's re- like really flat to me, taken all together. Um, maybe 7 out of 10 was a bit high, but... You know, then there are some platinum heads I know who really, really rate this, and I feel like I just played a different game. But I, I, I think it's it's muddled development period and it's slightly prolonged development period at least um, resulted in a slightly muddled game. Yeah, so this was announced back in two thousand nine as Metal Gear Rising to be made in house at Kojima Productions, and then went away for years, didn't come out, and then reemerged as this platinum game um mm. with a platinum attitude and you know it, it looked a lot more like a kind of like riff on bayonetta than it had previously um mm. the kind of potential for a ride and spin-off was huge to me and i um i do remember like i i, I thought this game was all right at the time i think i reviewed it for sci-fi now and gave it four stars out of five mm. i think though that i agree with you in retrospect um something i really noticed when i played it is that they seem to run out of money after the first level. Like the first level is the best in this game. You, um, it's got like um, the nicest looking backgrounds and stuff, and then like it ends with that um, fight against Metal Gear uh, Ray. Is it Ray? Yeah, it's Ray. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You, it's basically the one from Metal Gear Solid Two that screams like a dinosaur. That one. Um, you you beat that, and you kind of cut that up, and it's a really good proof of concept for what the game should be. And then the rest of it is like these really bare looking backgrounds and like brown levels and nothing much of interest. And I actually think mm. that for for all people's kind of um, issues with Raiden and Metal Gear Solid 2, I think people are a bit more positive on him these days. Um, there was the potential for a good Raiden story in this game and it doesn't, it doesn't have it. It's a really, really boring story. And um, mm. I think in my head, I thought it would have been cool to have a, a game that was about what happened to Raiden between Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, mm. that's kind of what I wanted but this was set post Metal Gear Solid 4 I believe and then it's um, it, it really just has nothing to nothing from the previous it's about, games it, it's a real like like monster of the week kind of organ harvesting operation or something it's it's like just total filler yeah and it sort of arrived right at the end of the generation where not much was going on generally and it felt a bit dry 
Um, and I think that a lot of leftover goodwill for Bayonetta and Vanquish probably gave this one higher scores than it deserved. I agree with you about yeah. the final boss as well. That's the one that's got that terrible music playing as well, right? That like um, oh, just, and, the whole thing's garbage. Yes, yeah, I think like the music is like and and you are you and I am not me. It's something like that, like terrible. <laughs> A like terrible kind of like electric kind of rock song, but I remember um, big uh, sonic energy. Yeah, yeah, I think you're I think you're right about this. I don't think like it's a particularly celebrated game these days. I don't think there's a, there's much kind of like cool to revisit it. They never made a sequel. I mean, yeah, it was kind of a bit of a bum spin off for Metal Gear. Looks a, a, an amazing trailer game. Looks amazing in a trailer for two minutes. Like the, the best two minutes of this game are phenomenal, but. It isn't that game for the most part. Yeah, and I feel like the th- the one thing they did nail was the cutting stuff up thing. Like it felt like that was the starting point for the game. Get this right, yeah. and then build everything else on top of it. But cool. I know, I know for one that um, uh, listener of the show, Rich Stanton, is a fan of this game. So um, apologies, Rich. Well, I'm excited <laughs> about being uh, called out on Twitter yet again. Um, it should be good. <laughs> uh, cool. We'll get Rich on to defend it at some point when we do our Metal Gear podcast down the line. Cool. So my next one is. Rhyme. It was an indie oh, game yeah. uh, that I gave 62%. So this is from the developer Tequila Works. It was in development for a long time, I believe. Started out as more of a kind of like open world sort of survivally game. And then re-emerged as this kind of like narrative-based platform adventure. So I picked this one because it actually came up in conversation with my girlfriend last week. Um, it's like got It's like a big dad story, basically, this. And... Um, I think I personally don't get that excited about that as a, like a theme in in storytelling, right? And like, um, even though it looked really nice, I just um, I couldn't get as excited about that side of things as um, I know that other critics did. Like, this did get like really high scores from some critics, and I think that particularly if you're a parent, this story probably resonated more. But this is one where I really diverged on the fact that those themes didn't do much for me. And it felt like I'd seen everything in this game before. But it was like mm. one of the last really overhyped indie games, I think. Even though I did really like uh, Tequila Works worked on um, The Sexy Brutal, which is a game I really love. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, this didn't. This one uh, didn't do much for me, despite looking quite nice. I was reflecting on it and thinking, was I a little bit harsh there? But I don't know. I don't think that there was... Um, it wasn't really a great puzzle game, a great platform game. It was kind of like a nice look at the environments game while a, a story a story is being delivered at you. And um, yeah, just uh, yeah, just sort of bounced off of it. Really, did you play this one? Yeah, I played a little bit of it and and, and never made it through to the end. Um, yeah, I, I have a, I have a, a little bit of kind of sort of melancholic, cell sated indie game sort of fatigue. You know, there's only sort of so so many of these kind of light puzzlers you can kind of play, really. Yeah, it just didn't. Yeah, just didn't really gel or, or click with me. What's your next one, Matthew? <laughs> My next one is Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles: The Crystal Bearers, hmm. which I gave 82% in Endgamer. It's definitely at the high end of it. Um, this was. Again, from that period where some publish, publishers were just going all out with the with the the Wii exclusives, uh, Square Enix were great for this. Um, We've been waiting, for, you know. So that that factors into my thinking a little bit. You know, there there's definitely an edge of like I I, I start in a naturally happy place when someone's tried on Wii because um, <laughs> because so few people did. <laughs> this is a really unusual Final Fantasy game. This is a um, sort of a third-person action game 
where uh, the combat is all about kind of picking things up and throwing them about using the Wii flicks, Wii remote flicks. So it's like a sort of telekinetic kind of superpower game. Very, like, cinematic. Like, it had a lot of set pieces. Like, one of the criticisms aimed at the campaign is it's it's arguably, like, lots of... Not quick-time events. They're a bit more complicated than that, but it's like a string of quite um, scripted moments. Um, but what my kind of take on this at the time was that, to me, it felt like... Uh, a Final Fantasy game, which was kind of trying to deliver the the sort of cinematic experience of a Final Fantasy game, but like in the action, it wasn't you know because traditionally these are games where like the most exciting stuff happens in the cinematics, and then you cut to the combat, and it's this turn based thing, and it's it's quite detached from from that. Um, this I thought was a really interesting attempt to kind of kind of put you in the hot seat for everything so all the exciting you know there were like turret sections and stealth sections and all this there's a bit you start the game like uh skydiving it's quite it's quite kind of hectic and i so i like that about it it also has a uh, at the heart of it has this sort of um like achievement system where there are like 300 or so kind of um like actions you were trying to perform in the world and you know, these ranged from quite simple things of like kill this particular boss to trying to like eke out like weird reactions from the world using telekinesis. So there was like you could pick up if there was like a skeleton monster, you could use a telekinetic powers to like pull off its skull. And then if you held that skull, if there were wolf enemies, they'd all like pant at your feet like dogs. And then that might be like a reaction. So it had this kind of like hidden like ecosystem kind of thing to it where you were trying to use your powers to kind of create little moments and you know some of them were like like special takedowns of certain enemy types you could like um like peel off armor from like a particular robot and then pull the ejector lever inside to throw out the pilot and that would be a discovery or you could just like chuck rocks at it or whatever but you know in in one playthrough of this game you'd maybe do like a third of these discoveries and really it was this sort of weird like play pen to try and kind of tease out these sort of hidden hidden mechanics and hidden reactions it was very playful very sort of silly um it just really really clicked with me really gelled but a lot of people saw it as like oh it's just really linear too many set pieces and the combat's really basic you just fling stuff around or you just run past them and it was like yeah but it's about the it's about trying to work out how to use those flinging powers to kind of tease out this sort of hidden layer of the game which i which i really really enjoyed it was made by uh the crystal chronicle series is headed up by a producer called akatoshi kawazu who is quite all his games are a bit odd. He's kind of the odd final. He's like the odd one of the Square Enix's sort of oddballs. And remember, at the end of the game, it like ends with like a handwritten letter from him appears on the screen and says like "Thank you so much for playing this game." And then it's like his signature on it, which I really <laughs> liked. It's very charismatic, strange, very end gamer, like weirdo, kind of a weirdo <laughs> take on an RPG. Yeah, I like how you invoke end gamer there specifically um, to describe that. So. This is where I ambush you, Matthew, and say that I gave this 5 out of 10 for Games TM. Oh, um, no! Yeah, so I, I don't think I played it for as much time as you, to be fair. So probably didn't get as much out of it as you did. I don't contest the fact that it was, it was like a, for a Wii game, a big budget feeling thing. Like, um, hmm. it, had an, it had like an overworld, I recall, and then 
loads of different NPCs you can interact with, and then tr- usually interacting with the NPCs would trigger these mini games. There were loads and loads of mini games in this, I seem to recall. Uh, mm-hmm. like fishing and stuff like that am i right there i think that's yeah, right yeah yeah so different ways to use a kind of flicking um system um it was definitely unusual and interesting for a final fantasy game but um yeah i don't know i think maybe i was i, I think maybe because i didn't pay as much close attention to the the wii's kind of um journey as you did i i, I was starting to find that like using the wii mote had a real kind of novelty vibe to it and this was a whole game of like novelty ways to use the Wiimote to me and um mm. that combined with this I don't know I you know admittedly got quite nice sort of Zelda-y overworld um it was quite a Zelda-y feeling Final Fantasy game I thought in terms of tone um mm. yeah that's, that's 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 fair yeah maybe that's like maybe that's more of a Crystal Chronicles thing generally I don't know but um yeah it's I, awkward because I feel I feel like we've both got separate scores on this but we're both right about our scores <laughs> <laughs> no I, I don't know I think this is this is a freelance assignment for me, and I, I'm sure that you played it for longer than I did. And um, no, it's interesting to hear you defend it. Like this is a real sort of like uh, recesses of my memory kind of Wii game. And um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was a little bit harsh in it. I don't know. No, was... no, you pretty like you. Most people said what you said. <laughs> mm. Well, um, I don't... like it was it was very flick heavy. I just I don't know like the 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 the, the whole kind of like medal system or, or whatever they called them. I think they might have been discoveries. They were called. That's that's a, that's a mechanic I like in games. Like in my head, that's not too dissimilar to like the uh, like achievement system in in modern Hitman. You know where you're replaying something to kind of tease all this weird stuff out, and it's obviously a very different game, a very different vibe. But I do like games where there is like a lot of secret and weird things to discover. Like that's something that clicks with me. Mm. Does this producer still make stuff for Square Enix? Um, uh, I haven't. I, I uh, to be fair, I haven't. I haven't looked because he's. Um, I think he's like Mister. Is it Saga and all that stuff? All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, sort of a side of JRPGs I'm not that familiar with, admittedly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not like a, a big enough of a Square Enix head to have played those things. But he's kind of like, I don't know. It's a bit like how at Nintendo you have like your Miyamoto and Anuma doing their thing, but then you also have like the weird, the weirdos who work for like Sakamoto, the kind of WarioWare guys. Yeah. And I kind of, I'm a big fan of like the weirdos at a big company who still get to make <laughs> stuff. Because um, I mean, basically, Endgamer was like the weirdos at Future get to make stuff, so maybe that's why I like it. Yeah, I think that uh, probably Shutakumi fits that bill a bit as well. Um, yeah, he's still at Capcom, just writing his weird detective in his little cupboard. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Like, you've added the detail of the cupboard, I assume. But, um... <laughs> I like to think he's just there by himself, <laughs> just getting on with it. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting one to revisit. I don't think it ever would have come up on this podcast otherwise. So. Um... Yeah. How do you know? It wouldn't be one of my games of 2008. Oh, who knows? We'll, we'll find out in two weeks, Matthew. Um, <laughs> was that really 2008 that came out? Yeah. Oh my god, I'm so old. Fucking hell. Okay, so my next one is Wolfenstein 2 The New Colossus. I gave this 81% for PC Gamer. It was a lower score than the first one, and that was an interesting thing to do in itself, because generally speaking, reviewing sequels, like, um, you know, the typical pattern with sequels these days is that the second one is usually bigger or better like um there's mm. not usually much of a downturn and this one was um i have quite complicated feelings about it like um 
I had to review it in basically a day, I think. I think I played the entire thing from start to finish in one day. My big problem with this game, which I did generally like still, like um, Machine Games knows how to do good shooting. Um, there are some really kind of like novel and interesting settings they take you to in this game, like the uh, Nazi base on Venus. I'm sure everyone remembers when you uh, <laughs> you meet a gross dying Hitler. Um, that was quite a very memorable sequence. Obviously, all of the kind of cutscenes have like a good vibe about them. There's um, weirdly sort of wholesome series and uh, you know wholesome protagonist in uh, B.J. Baskovitz. I think that um, this game suffered a bit from repeated level design. You went to some of the same settings twice. You also, I think this had some really wonky difficulty as well. I think they later patched mm. the difficulty settings. I played this on one of the normal difficulties. I don't remember which one. But there is a sequence, I think, in like Congress or a, a Congress-like kind of hall where I found it so incredibly tough and that it was like actively hard to enjoy. And I think that was a bit of a bummer. Actually, um, maybe, I, maybe I should have reviewed this lower. I don't know. But... Um, I think that 81%, mm. giving it less than The New Order, a game that I only remember enjoying, was probably about right. Um, just a bit of an uneven game, this. Did you play Wolfenstein 2? Yeah, I I, I much preferred the first game. Um, I, 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 I don't think this is as good as the first one. Yeah, So, which is weird, because um, it took them I'm years to make it. it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know... I just remember the settings being like really drab. Too many things set inside like quite quite boring factories. It's got a few like absolutely standout set pieces that everyone remembers, like the American town with the milkshake Nazi, hmm. um, the the weird bit, the, the wheelchair at the start, and all that kind of gubbins. You know, there's it's got it, it demoed brilliantly. Like the, the two bits they showed us like in preview. I thought this game is going to be absolutely amazing. But I actually found it quite drab and repetitive. Like you say, I didn't like the way it reused certain levels. Um, yeah, I think the first game's got more variety. Um, I preferred the kind of use of the... You know, the, 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 the way the villains were used in the first game. I thought... Uh, I can't remember her name, but the kind of the, the mad woman whose face gets all chewed up... Um, was like a, a a lot more of a interesting dynamic villain in how she was in the first game as opposed to the second. Um, yeah, I, I I actually didn't get on very well with this series after the first game. So, um, you know, I kind of hoping hoping for another could get uh, you know a better game down the line. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that the um, Indiana Jones one is um, you know like a, a sort of a. a a really good fit for them and, and works quite well. I say I found the cutscenes in the second one like really over long. They're 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 quite nice characters and like you say, it's got quite an interesting worldview. Like it's it's quite quirky. You know, it's almost like oddballs against you know sort of oddball revolutionaries. But I found it like very very indulgent compared to the first game. Like there was a lot more of me just sitting there listening to it waffle on. Um, I just didn't think it was as interesting as it thought it was. Yeah, um, I think the way it tries to like account for your choice of which character you saved in the first one is a bit a bit of a misfire as well you get like way too many cutscenes of the drunk scottish man if you saved him in the first one <laughs> maybe maybe i was maybe i was wrong about this score i only really want to make the point that like it was worse than the first one which had a very simple yeah, I, I, approach yeah, of like right. here's a here's a level that is just a big robot fight, uh, shooting at you and um 
you move down a building, then you destroy the big robot, and that's the level. And I think that... Yeah, first first one's better. Yeah, and also I think that the spin-off they made about the two sisters was really cheap-feeling. Um, I played a bit of that yeah. on Game Pass, and it wasn't very good. I, I, I didn't dig that one either. Um, I like the I liked the DLC they did after the first one, the the kind of the was it the old blood yeah the um flashback one yeah that was fun yeah I, I had a lot sorry. of time for that that was good but then i don't know the, the tone of it changed it, it got a bit more i don't know it's not as not as fun uh after that yeah for whatever reason yeah i agree with you um so yeah quite an interesting one to go back to i was just there thinking ah, I, don't, I don't think i'd ever replay that game but i'd maybe think about replaying the first one but um anyway what's your next one matthew so this next one is the one I thought you were going to have have it reviewed and you were going to disagree with. Mm. Um, this is Resident Evil 6, which I gave an 8 in our exam. Wow. <laughs> um, when it was re-released on Xbox One. Uh, this is, I mean, I don't, is this a game I got right? It's such a guilty, this is a real guilty pleasure. I, I love like how much this game is, just how, how, how like hard it goes at everything. I love how ridiculous the idea of like we're going to make three campaigns and just throw everything at them. They are crazy, like cinematic beasts. They're really over the top. There's so many boss fights. There's just so much in this game. I kind of like it. Just like bullied me in submission, and I kind of really admire it. Yeah. So this is not a game that I hate. This is a game that I quite like. I think it's worse than five. Um, I probably wouldn't give it an eight, but I probably would give it a seven. It's um, yeah, and I think they maybe they re-released it, or maybe it factored in that it was like twenty quid. I was like, you know what, for like twenty quid, this is kind of mad. You know, it was a really smooth version. It was playing really nice on Xbox One. There's just so much of it. Well, the entire game is in co-op too, right? Like you can play all yeah. of these campaigns. There's so there's three different campaigns. There's a Chris Redfield and uh, and Piers campaign. Um, yeah. which is like widely considered the worst one. You're basically in a war zone fighting big monsters. Um, Getting chased by the Ersternak. Yeah, that's kind of quite silly. Then there's the Leon one that people are quite positive on. I can't remember who he's teamed up with. It's a girl who looks like Ashley, but not is not Ashley. No, I'm getting mixed up with the Jake campaign, which um, the Jake campaign is him mixed uh, with uh, Sherry Birkin, I think, right? Yeah, and, that's um, right, yeah. Yeah, so, and I, I understand the Leon one is a little bit closer to like, classic resident evil in terms of its setting and stuff um yeah but um, i've actually only played the chris one and the jake one um and not the one that people say is actually good and people say the ada campaign you unlock at the end is actually the best one as well so um well it's quite weird it's like almost got like weird puzzly stuff in that's mm. the thing it's just there's so much in this game they yeah really like it's really something you know it's just like so outrageously full-on it's the spider-man 3 of resident evil <laughs> I think there's probably a world where like this gets like a director's cut and edited down a bit. Like um it does it is a very flabby game. It does feel like they spent yeah, a yeah. fortune on it. Um like this must have cost like a hundred million to make or something crazy like that. It's so like full <laughs> See, of yeah. It did feel like everyone at Capcom made it. <laughs> it had like when they I think when they presented it it had like film credits on it on, on like a you know produced by it had so many people working on it because they did make th- like it's basically three times the size of Resi 5 it's like three Resi 5s happening at the same time yeah I think that um, people were <laughs> people were really ready to hate this one and like I think it confirmed a lot of their sort of um, 
you know, feelings about where Resident Evil was going that had become this sort of silly action series. And, you know, there's no denying it at this point, particularly in Chris's campaign. You are playing basically like a a survival horror themed slightly um, action game. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that this it's a really, really interesting like product of its time, a really, really odd game. And um, I think that it also has like a very good mercenaries mode. There's um there's a bunch of like hidden mechanics to the combat in this. Like you can do stuff like jump backwards onto the ground and then kind of like roll around and <laughs> all <At> this last. <laughs> <laughs> well no, it's I think it's actually quite sophisticated because it means you have like another option to sort of like dodge enemies and stuff like that. So a guy's swiping at you and you're like, okay, well I'll jump back onto the ground and headshot him from the ground where I'm relatively safe, then get back up again. I remember, like, um, Mark McDonald, formerly of 1UP, tweeting, like, um, a NeoGAF thread saying, look, there's loads of, like, mechanics to Resident Evil 6 that Capcom just never explains to you, but here's a really good primer on how they all work. And it kind mm-hmm. of, like, revealed that there's there's a lot of, like, deep action mechanics at work in this that you're just never, like, taught to use properly. And I think that... I don't know. Like, I don't think it's, like, Resident Evil's finest hour, but I don't think it's, like, the total disaster that people say it is. I think it's just not what people wanted from Resident Evil at the time. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's more what I'm getting at. Like, I've, I've, I feel like it's, uh, like it's a game some people are going to absolutely adore because it's just... It's just wild, you know, such a wild thing. And if you like quite traditional video game tropes of, like, bosses that keep coming back in, like, ever bigger forms, there's, like, ten of them that do that in this. (laughs) Like, it's just got so many boss fights. It's so overblown. Yeah, I really, I've just got a lot, I've got a lot of time for it. I've got a lot of respect for something this mad (laughs) um, and this sort of, like, busted. Maybe it's just, it just ticks a lot of, like, specific castle boxes but yeah I, th- I thought this was a a wild ride nice i think i like the your little um on the worksheet we've got here it says uh, i think i like games that are a bit much um <laughs> yeah. that's a good summary uh, what's your next one matthew uh cyberpunk a recent pick um which i gave seven out of ten and i think it's like absolutely right i don't think i've i'm i've in the last like five years or so i don't think i've been more right on a game than cyberpunk <laughs> Um, which makes its ongoing sort of travails kind of quite interesting to me because I think, like, it doesn't matter what you fix on a technical level, I think it's got this inherently flawed design of it's an incredibly cinematic game that also wants to be a very deep RPG, and it doesn't need to be a deep RPG to be a very cinematic game, and that's, that's, that's the problem at the heart of Cyberpunk. It's a campaign where you can bring any character in and basically get through it because it's designed to be a real action spectacular and then it's quite a, a quite a boring world of, of side tasks where more interesting hero builds come into play but it's so it feels like such a step down from the kind of the big story content that it, it's just not very fun to play i think is is the is the huge divide at the heart of of cyberpunk it just doesn't gel the two worlds together and whenever I see stories about it, like this idea that it's going to magically turn into something better, I just just don't see it. I think it's it is what it is. Absolutely spectacular in some places, uh, really super baggy and unfocused and weird, and but not in a good way. Mm, yeah. So it's um, I um, 
was kind of hoping that after their recent like um, patch 1.2, it might be fixed. And then PC Gamer literally ran a headline that was, no, Cyberpunk 2077 still isn't fixed. And uh, yeah, I sort of, I think like what I want is I basically just want all of the main bugs to be eliminated and then I'll play it. Yeah, I know, yeah. like I had a really smooth ride with this. So this 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 take is is very much uh, on what the game is rather than like the kind of technical problems because I didn't, I just didn't run into any of it. Like, uh, you know, I, I actually had a pretty good time with it on, on PC, that is where I played it. And I, I kind of want us to get to the point where we can get get past the bug conversation and they can get it fixed to the point where we can actually just talk about it as what it actually is as a game, which is a 7 out of 10. Well, that is what I think our podcast on that game on the game did so well, um, is mm. that we did kind of sweep aside like all of this conversation around it, which is quite boring to read about at this point. Like, it's quite boring to read about what CD Projekt is saying about you know, here's how we're why we're still going to keep updating it and all this stuff and how much money they made. And I don't care about any of that. Like, it's just, mm. there was so much that last year. And um, I agree with you. I kind of want more talk about why it's not a great stealth game, because it definitely isn't. And like, why it's, um, you know, why why it's actually not like a fantastic shooter either. And, um, but, but like some celebration of what it actually gets right. Like those moments where it really, really immerses you in its setting. Yeah, some of the some of the best like virtual performances I've ever seen. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Like when you're dealing with the characters up close, and like the voice performances and the animation on them, and the setting, like the attention to detail, like in in the absolute like the the core story, like the key beats, um, and and some of the character side missions are just so be- beautifully made. But they're so contr- you know they're they're it's closer to the craft of like a Call of Duty game, you know. It's it's that like linear and that kind of control that they can layer that on, um, but that's just so jarring with the kind of sandbox nature of the world and RPG mechanics, which don't go anywhere. Like the fact that you can literally complete every task in this game, and you know you've made no dent on on skill trees. But what are those advanced skills for? If you've if you've you know smashed this game with the core skills, it's it's just so unbalanced so unrefined as an rpg uh, it's very very poor in that regard mm. oh, that, is, yeah, that is weirdly messy for a modern game um, yeah it's, it's but yeah i just, just i don't know it feels like a studio that hadn't made this kind of game before which they hadn't so you know it's like wrong deus ex <laughs> <laughs> well uh hopefully their uh their run at the witcher 4 will do uh will be a bit better oh yeah um, i mean just if they just make more witcher 4 it's like the witcher 3 that's that's what matters. That's what all I want. Yeah. So I don't know though. I'm just sort of like I. I feel like um, it, it's like an even worse version of how people's perception of Bethesda changed a bit after um, Fallout Four and Fallout seventy six, where I think like people aren't as like unquestionably thrilled about the idea of playing a game from that studio now. Yeah. Yeah. So they've definitely well, got something to when, prove. When so much of your messaging was like aligned with, you know gamers first and we're you know the the very the 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 audience they they like aggressively pursued is like the angriest audience if you kind of don't give them what they want so there you go yeah you make your bed you have to kind of lie in it yeah exactly which is why it's like the more important than ever that the game does the talking and if it can't then uh, it's a fucking waste of time the whole thing uh interestingly one of the big things they've patched is that in the game you do now lie in your bed properly (laughs) (laughs) uh very good. Some, some some poetry in that. Yeah, I think so. So we did it, Matthew. We did the games that we scored correctly. Yeah, I mean, 
I scored most of them other games correctly as well, but I, I wanted to draw particular attention to those. Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit more about the kind of broader spectrum of reviewing games when there's like a disappointing element or it's a sequel that doesn't quite work properly or the game's a bit racist and, um, you know, <laughs> just trying to navigate yes. all these issues. Uh, so yeah, that was um, it was good stuff. So we actually have a few uh, list of questions to see us out here, Matthew. Um, they've kind of accumulated a little bit. If you'd like to send us a question to read out on the podcast, you can email us at backpagegames at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at backpagepod on Twitter. So first up, uh, I'll read this first one, Matthew, then you can read the uh, next one and so on and so forth. So, hello, gents. Really enjoying the podcast. Well done. My question relates to my dad. He's 63. For Christmas, I got him a Series S and Game Pass. He's enjoying a few games, mainly Forza, Golf, and Fishing Sim Pro Tour. Sounds like a dad to me. He's got on with yeah. these games because he knows the rules going in. I've only just realised how abstract gaming is. He doesn't have the baked-in knowledge and muscle memory, and when I was explaining that the left stick moves your body and the right stick moves your head, he looked at me like I was talking rubbish. My question for you is, can you recommend any other games on Series S with a kind learning curve to get him playing more and getting better value from his Game Pass. Cheers, Alex. Any uh, shouts on this one, Matthew? I mean, it's tricky because the, the whole movement in games, that's the initial problem, isn't it? And I can't think of many games which like actively get you over that. Um, in terms of like a game which has got quite a nice pace uh, to like get your grips to get to grips with the world and can be relatively sedate if you want it to be, maybe something like Sea of Thieves? Mm, yeah, I was thinking like, that. Because, you know, it, while it has got a lot of depth to it, the fundamentals I think you can pick up quite easily and it's designed to be quite, you know, low energy if you want it to be. Like, you can just pootle around in a boat and the boat kind of behaves as you would expect a boat would behave. Yeah, that's a good shout. I think that um, my dad was so rig- is so rigid in the games he'll play that mm. I'd, most of my recommendations he wouldn't take seriously. Or he'd look at it and think, well, that's a silly game and then just never play it. Um, yeah, I mean, Sea of Thieves is quite cartoony, but it's also like boats and like old men like the sea. <laughs> yeah, this has been proven. You can't contest this. They like looking at it and thinking about lost loves. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Projecting a little bit here, I think, but um, nonetheless, yeah. I think um, another one that sort of came to mind was that if you've got Game Pass and Xbox, like, um, and your dad's a bit of a sports fan, I think the Fight Night games are just phenomenal. I think there's only maybe only one on EA's sort of Game Pass thing, and that is Champion. Um, but I think you can whack the difficulty right down, and then all you have to do is like mash, you know, square to sort of punch a guy, and then um, oh, yeah. triangle to do like a haymaker. And um, that's like boxing. Yeah, exactly. And um, all your all your character can do is move from side to side. There's no like first person movement or anything. So um, mm. yeah, I think the story mode as well is like basically like uh, a sort of a not very good version of Rocky. So um, that will be um, perfectly fine. You know, like like most of the Rocky films. Um, that's a bit harsh, <laughs> but um, yeah. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of my shout. It's a bit of a tough one though. I agree that like making uh, figuring out games that sort of. Um, parents might like is tough maybe also think about um flight simulator and turning like all the kind of um assists on so all all your dad has to do is fly around the earth that might be all right um <laughs> yeah there we go i think just we um uh, just your that. dad circling the globe <laughs> thinking himself. about lost loves um <laughs> yeah okay so uh next up matthew read the next question uh hollywood has greenlit games court as a thrilling courtroom drama this is news to me, but I'm happy to hear it. 
Uh, what celebrities are called in to portray Samuel, Matthew, and the rest of the cast? And what shocking twist can we expect at the end of the movie? From Nick. So, Interesting. Yeah, I think that Christian Bale should play both of us. Um, <laughs> he loves gaining weight, and he'd have to gain weight. <laughs> You'd have to do that to play both of us at different times of our lives. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, that's uh, Christian Bale comes to mind. Um, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. I, I just like the idea of him bulking up to play both of us. That's good. I'd, I'd rather that than, like, Mike Myers in a fat suit. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, Christian Bale is both of us. I don't know who the rest of the cast are in Games Court. I mean... Crash Bandicoot is there, I think. Um, played by Dustin Hoffman. Um, played by Dustin Hoffman. Well, I'd say all the CG characters would, of course, be played by Andy Serkis in a CG suit. Yeah. So, um, and, voice- and Chewbacca can, can just be from Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it can be the Chewbacca, who I think is, um, I think the actor's called Junus something or other. He can... Uh, old Chewbacca died, didn't he? Um, yeah, he got squashed by a moon, I believe, um, in the old Star Wars... Uh, universe but um that's what happens when you let you know uh star wars get out of control in the hands of like mad authors but um yeah i actually um i do have a quite a good suggestion for you matthew i've been watching better call saul and bob odenkirk's got a little bit of your energy i think um <laughs> i think like mr show era sort of bob odenkirk playing matthew castle i think that'll work quite mm. well yeah um, that's fine with that it's like a relatively handsome dude yep and uh but no one really looks like me i've got a small chin like a big head and then like i'm just quite an odd looking guy um i'd you'd have to go like proper uh gary oldman rubber prosthetics <laughs> God, brutal <laughs> well you think like <laughs> just gonna like just um like uh sand down his winston churchill outfit to play me i mean jesus <laughs> just shave off some churchill <laughs> i imagine oh. like I imagine him getting into that outfit like it was um like it's mom in Futurama getting into a like old lady um kind of like carapace. Um yeah. Well there you go, that's what Gary Oldman would have to go through to play me. Um Yeah, I don't know. I mean I suppose like you could also film an alternate ending where there's an executioner. Who would have been the executioner in Games Court? Like who would have like put me to death? Well it'd be masked, so it could be anyone. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where it's masked, and then and then after the fact, everyone's like, "Did you know it was Kevin Costner?" And it's like a fun story about the film. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. Good. Well, yeah. I think um, Kristen Bell's still a good answer, though, and he has to do yeah. the, the voices for both of us. And um, I mean, he's also played two guys before in a film. I won't say which one in case people listening don't know which one I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's a spoiler in itself, I guess. Um, cool. Next question. Greetings, you two. Quick, probably slightly boring question. Have you two got any favourite in magazine advertisements you came across either as a reader or while working on your mags? Or ads you thought were totally inappropriate or dog shit? The one that I remember the most is the Worms World Party advert where a giant angry looking worm is being removed from the arse of some poor patient while the hospital staff are displaying signs of shock and disgust. Not sure something like that could get printed nowadays. Shame really. P.S. Sorry, Samuel, it wasn't my place to criticise your highly questionable game purchases. I should leave that job to Judge Matthew. So that was um, uh, Chris Doherty sent that in and previously slammed me for buying um, Star Wars Masters of Terrace Cassie, which I had no real (laughs) objection to. Um, And then Chris attached a picture of the um the worm in question advert it's a really elaborate looking like print ad for a worms game i, f- I think um 
it's got like real actors like um, grabbing it and it's a kind of like the thing style sort of horror um i don't really know why it exists it feels like a pure it feels a bit like coked up as an ad idea to be honest um but yeah uh i don't remember that many but the one that came to mind matthew was the um John Romero is about to make you his bitch advert. Um, I don't remember <laughs> yeah. if I ever saw that in PC Gamer or if it, if that was just like circulated and talked about in PC Gamer. But I remember seeing that ad and thinking, well, that's obviously like very of its time kind of notable thing. Yeah. Um, any come to mind for you? No, there were a lot of them are quite quite naff. I mean, the the the, the I only really, really remember the ones which people kind of complain about. Every once in a while, there were a Twitter thread where people are like. Look at these terrible ads from the from the late nineties, early noughties. weren't all games magazines terrible? And you're like, well, it wasn't really. We didn't make the ads. Yeah, there was that. I think there was some quite bad ones for Hitman. For like, was it beautifully executed? Oh, and it yeah. was like mod- models with like gunshots in their heads. Which, when you say it out loud, you're like, of course, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, in terms of ones I like, I don't. I you know. They're always adverts for such naff things, you know. I always used to laugh that, you know, in N64, it was always a lot of adverts for, like, platforming games they'd absolutely murdered, you know, like Gex or Earthworm Jim 3D or something. Um, it was always that kind of stuff. But, yeah, nothing nothing jumps out. I'd have to, I'd have to go back and have a proper look and see if I can uh, spur, spur my memory. Yeah, I think that all of the ones that were, like, trying to be sort of, like, sexy ended up being terrible. The one that's burned into my brain is, do you remember that like uh, cheats line that was on the back of every Games Master book? Uh, is it like red? Yeah, with like the the badly rendered CG woman in like a sort of black skirt and how is holding a gun, I think. Um, that was in like every Games magazine, I feel like, for about 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and then you had the period when I joined Mags, they'd stopped having a lot of that stuff. It was mainly adverts for like horrible mobile phone wallpaper ad companies. And it was all kind of like, you know, Yoda smoking a spliff and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like very, very big 2006 energy. <laughs> yeah, like phone background ads and things like that. Um, the one I used to really like in PC Gamer was there was a massive, like, back when you used to do sort of postal orders and things, there was a huge list of like games you could buy with prices and they're like a little coupon you cut out and it's like, you know, send us 50 quid and then in six to eight weeks we'll send you your copy of Hexen or whatever. Um, (laughs) And like those are quite, those are like, they stop you in your tracks when you read an old mag now, I think. But um, yeah, I don't know. So uh, next up, you want to hit us with a final one, Matthew? It's quite a long, oh wait, it's two more, but but, um, it's quite a long one, this one. Hi, Samuel and Matthew. Thanks for the wonderful podcast, especially the episode on the closing of the PS3 and PS Vita digital stores. It was a great topic of discussion and had me thinking about something that has been nagging at me for some time. I love collecting physical Switch games to future-proof my gaming collection, but is there really any point? Most games nowadays are shipped with a day one patch, and sometimes these patches fix game-breaking bugs. Here's where the problem is. In the future, when, say, Nintendo closes its Switch digital store, will you still be able to download the patches for these games or will they disappear as well? If I were to buy a game on eBay in the future, what would I, what use would it be if I can't patch it? 
The trouble is, games don't write the patch onto the cartridge. Why? Probably the cost of rewritable versus read-only chips. Uh, the patch is stored on the microSD, which is locked to the console, and if the console dies, will you be able to transfer the microSD to another console with all your patches on it? I think people are misguided thinking that nowadays the physical copy of the game is a way of avoiding digital redundancy when patches and DLC are the same as buying the game, the full game digitally. Maybe the lovely people at Nintendo, Sony and Microsoft will offer the patches to public domain so we can play the full, fixed version of the game in the future. After all, it's not a piracy issue. You can't play the patch on its own as you need the rest of the game. Love to hear your thoughts, says Mark Hine from Brisbane, Australia. Hmm. Well, thank you for listening to, from all the way down there. I mean, obviously, it's a, the internet, so it's um, yeah. it's, it's not like when people used to send a photo in of um, to a magazine of them holding a copy of like N sixty four in like Cairo or something. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I this weighs on my mind a little bit. Um, obviously, with the um, PS three store closing, this has come up more. This is still very unknown territory because even with the PS three and Vita stores closing. It's un- it's unclear how long Sony will keep its like online services going, but you get the sense that if they're happy to switch off the store, at some point they'll probably be happy to switch that off too. And then at that point, it'll feel like whatever you've got is whatever you can like enjoy. And I agree that this not being future proofed is a little bit a little bit concerning. Um, in some ways, it feels like, in terms of physical games, I feel like 3DS was the last Nintendo era where all that stuff feels like totally secure in and of itself. Like you can put the cartridge in, there are patches for 3DS games, but it's generally speaking like it's generally speaking. Most 3DS games arrived in a pretty complete state. Um, I don't know. It's a big mm. unknown. It's a, I, I, I'm not that worried about it, but I feel like at some point it will become a, like a more concerning factor. Like someone will make a big blunder in this and then no one will be able to like patch their games anymore. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a few, you say a few kind of um, patching operations, kind of external of, of games publishers. So, like on on DS, there are a few like language patches for games, which just suggests that as long as people can kind of get their hands on the patch, there will be like some online, unofficial online support going forwards. Um, but yeah, uncharted territory, uh, you know. I think you can still, you know, even though you can't buy things on the Wii Store, you can still download them, um, things that you own. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so it's not a very helpful answer with, let's wait and see. But yeah. That's kind of the vibe. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's how I, I feel also. So our last question is um, from Robert Augusta Meyer, like uh, one of the um, OG um, back page listeners. Um Howdy, you two. Why do gamers get so defensive about critic scores? Have either of you ever felt afraid about publishing one? P.S. Thank you for looking into all those PS3 store games. Looks like I don't have to bother. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> good stuff. That's what that podcast is for. The uh, intent was, um, yeah, was found. Um, so, yeah, I think we touched on this a little bit. I sort of like defensive. I mean, that's just because okay. I think that this is the kind of like climate of games kind of discussion online where... Uh, people think they can just talk absolute shit and um, you know send abusive messages and all this stuff because of uh, I just gamers are just a bit like this. Um, I've I've become so kind of like um, I became so sort of immune to it over the years that it doesn't really bother me that much. But um, mm. I think we touched on this before. I wouldn't be afraid of publishing um, a score. I would be like wary about making sure that we're publishing the right score. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, not something that bothers me that much. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, very much the same. I mean, like, as long as I think the review's fair, um, 
you know, and we've done our job and we've kind of played it properly and given it, you know, the best, the best sort of, you know, a proper look and a, you know, a, a proper chance. Then, yeah, I'm, I'm confident in what we publish um, yep. and what I have published in the past. I don't want to get people are so f- f- fussy about very critical scores. I guess they just want to be told that all their things they're excited about are good or bad. But you're going to buy them regardless. In the same way that I used to buy terrible James Bond games. Uh, <laughs> It's just what we do. Yeah, the discourse is just uh, around all pop culture is just terrible these days. It's just a bit like that. People are like mm. people react overreacting to positive or negative scores. It's like who gives a fuck? Just watch it. Have your own take. It's fine. We'll all yeah, just, um... just try. And, uh, it's something I do miss from you know with magazines. It was a bit more implied because you know you had to go that extra step of actually paying to get the magazine. You know, you were sort of buying into opinions. You wouldn't buy a magazine if you really disagreed with it. There was a sense of sort of not allying yourself, but, you know, if you could feel comfortable with certain reviewers and maybe with everything being online and everything being so readily available, there's, it's harder to get a feel of individuals, of like where individual writers maybe stand on, on general things. Maybe it's harder to find a critic who you kind of, you sort of gel with which is really key because you're not going to agree with everyone. I disagree with most of my peers on most things uh, when it comes to game scoring and games reviewing. So, yeah, you just got to try and find someone you do agree with and then stick with them and give them a break if you ever part ways on opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think that, like, um, uh, I I still find scores I disagree with and I'll message my sort of peers about. So um, when the Snyder Cut was getting quite high scores from some of the... Um, uh, broadsheets in the UK. I was quite surprised. Like uh, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not like massively down on the um, on Zack Snyder's Justice League, but it was quite odd to see like Robbie Collin giving it five, four out of five or whatever. And um, it was um, something I was happy to talk about. I wouldn't overreact or like start tweeting at him or anything like that because I don't, I don't, I don't like disagree that strongly. I just, I've, I like discussing scores. I think there's a healthy discussion to be had around scores. It's just uh, obviously not everyone gets that. So um, mm. yeah. Well, there we go, Matthew. I think we're done for the uh, for the week. Um, a surprisingly long podcast. I didn't realise it would oh, it, yeah. it run this long. <laughs> maybe I'll slice some bits out to give it a bit, make it a bit pacier. I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Samuel W Roberts. You can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod. What about you, Matthew? Where can people find you? Oh, yeah, I am at Mr Basil underscore Pesto. Yes, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. So here, what's your final one then, Matthew? Uh, final one was Kid Icarus Uprising, which uh, I talked a, a fair amount about on our Best 3DS Games episode, um, so you should probably go and listen to that. Um, again, like, I feel, you know, this, this is probably my favourite 3DS game. Um, I I just, I, I love to see Sakurai outside of his Smash Brothers kind of... Um, not comfort zone. I think it's where he's forced to live. I don't think he necessarily chooses to live there. Mister <laughs> Smash, just Smash Brothers factory uh, in his cupboard next door to Shooter Kimi, uh, and 
Yeah, I like this. This isn't like a, a massively divisive one. You know, plenty of people like Kid Icarus. I just don't think enough. I don't think people, many people like it as much as I like it. You know, I really rate this as as like an all time 3ds classic. Um, I've just been replaying bits of it since we did that podcast, um, and just remembering just just how. Um, how just like just you know full on its kind of blockbuster scale is, which in a Nintendo game is so like unusual. It's just it's it really it's it's not something they've kind of pursued elsewhere. And like I said, I, I talked about this on the 3DS episode. Um, you know the music, the writing. It's so like it's it's just really really funny game. Um, really unusual characters. Um, a, a game which has that kind of Saturday morning cartoon vibe, but like is actually kind of good often that means it's kind of like quirky and characterful but you know kind of a bit childish but i think this one is genuinely funny um you know it has the old hand grip problem which i think is why some people marked it down because it's quite unusual um but it's really a game that only exists in this form on this particular uh platform um which is why I, yeah i really really rate it but i don't think that's too controversial no, I don't think so. But like, um, I think it, this is the game that I feel like after our uh, 3DS episode with Joe was one of the ones that commenters mentioned the most to us on Twitter. I feel like it's uh, possibly it's not in a go fuck yourselves kind of way. <laughs> well, no, I think one one listener told us that um, they had uh, sold their limited edition a version of the game, which now sells for loads on um, on eBay. But I think generally speaking, like. I think we touched on this in the episode, it missed the right window to become a success. Like, there wasn't the audience on 3DS at the time this was released for it to, like, take off in the way it probably deserved to. Um, mm. And I wonder if it, yeah, it just missed its window by, like, a year or something when um, the 3DS was in more hands. I'm not sure. But um, I like this too. And, uh, yeah, I, I um, actually did go and track down some of um, Mike Drucker's tweets about working on this after... Um, mm after talking about it and then f- finding some of the funny moments people were tweeting. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I just ran out of words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. <it> good? <laughs> nice. Yeah, cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut all that and then try and think of a, a way to wrap it up. Um, 